Quick announcement before we get into it. I am very excited to announce that Julie and I have a brand new cookbook coming out April 24th. It's called The Plant Power Way Italia. We're very proud of it. If you enjoyed our first book, The Plant Power Way, I think you're going to freak for this one. It's inspired by our retreats in Tuscany and the cuisine of the Italian countryside. It's super next level, incredible photography, 125 entirely new and, of course, delicious plant-based Italian recipes. And it's available for pre-order now from all your favorite online booksellers. You can learn more at richroll.com. Pre-orders are very important to the book's viability. And so... It would mean a great deal to us if you reserved your copy today. Thank you so much. I greatly appreciate it. And now on to the show. To me, the big moments were sort of identifying that this is something that is important enough to my life that I'm willing to do the work. And then the moment where I'd realized that I had done all the work that I needed to do, which is sort of a different way of looking at I'm now ready to do this. Instead of looking at it, it's like, I'm ready to climb El Cap, it's actually more of I have done the work that I needed. Mm-hmm. and. Therefore, you know, being able to do it like naturally follows. Mm-hmm. Think that people should just think about what is the thing that's worth it to you and then what is the work that you need to put into that. That's Alex Honnold, and this is the Ritual Podcast. The Ritual Podcast. So last week, I asked you to imagine being attacked by a nine-foot bull shark. And this week, I want to ask you to entertain something else altogether. I want you to think about, imagine, becoming the first person to free solo El Capitan. That means climbing a 7,500-foot sheer vertical rock face without any ropes, any harnesses, or any protective gear whatsoever, nothing but your grip, your skill, your merging with nature, an astonishing feat where even the tiniest mistake or unforeseen intervening variable for that matter could cost you your life. This is but one small aspect of the amazing life of Alex Honnold, a renowned professional rock climber whose audacious free solo ascents of America's biggest cliffs have made him, in my opinion, one of, if not the most compelling and masterful athletes of our generation. Now, I would imagine most of you listening are already intimately familiar with Alex, perhaps like me. You've watched with sweaty palms and you know jaw agape one of his many stunning climbing videos. Perhaps you've seen him on 60 Minutes or read profiles about him in the New York Times, National Geographic, or Outside Magazine. And we're left wondering, how is that possible? How does that guy do what he does? And I think the answer isn't as elementary as you might imagine. I really don't think it can be reduced to genetics or strength or technical ability or even just his ability to confront fear in a unique way. I think that the answer is far more complex and much, much more interesting. I think it's the confluence of many factors, diligent preparation, of course, a fidelity to incremental progression, which is sort of a benchmark, a hallmark of how he prepares and trains, a unique relationship with risk, yes, but mostly, I think it's about this union of mind and spirit. I think it's about his extraordinary mindfulness, his acumen for for presence, this minimalist approach to life that 
allows him to deeply immerse himself in his pursuits and, and the facility that he has for focus and calm and almost oneness with his surroundings. And I think it's all of these things and, and many more things that really set him apart. Uh, this is an amazing conversation. I've got a couple more thoughts I want to share about Alex and what's to come. But before we get into it... brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in Fleetfoot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton, birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive, and the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by Seed. Gut health is all the rage. There's good reason for that. I've probably devoted, I don't know, at least a dozen episodes of this podcast to the many, many crucial ways the microbiome contributes to your overall well-being or lack thereof, and to the many diet and lifestyle protocols we should all adopt to promote gut health, from fermented food, to fiber and everything in between, including, of course, the importance of supplementing with a probiotic. And 
the one that I have come to trust far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid, science-based, and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market. Formulated for optimal digestion, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, skin health. In fact, my 16-year-old daughter has been using it to clear up a significant acne issue, and it's been wonderful, as well as many other systemic benefits. Like I said, I've been taking it daily, personally, for years. I love it. My body loves it. And right now, for our listener community, Seed is offering 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Visit seed.com slash richroll and use the code richroll25 to redeem this offer. That's seed.com slash richroll or code richroll25. Okay, Alex Honnold. So Alex is somebody I've deeply admired for a very long time, somebody I've wanted to have on the show since day one. And I can tell you that this conversation does not disappoint. Uh, in addition to discussing his LCAP uh, experience and his recent expedition to Antarctica, which we get into, we discuss his routines, his training, his diet. Uh, you might be surprised to find out he's primarily vegan uh, and how he contextualizes what he does. And I think that this exchange is everything you want it to be. It's about adventure, fear, risk, curiosity, focus, preparation. It's about mindset. And it's about the advantages of living minimally, but it's not just the how behind what Alex does. It's also about the why behind his pursuits. Uh, I found Alex to be incredibly thoughtful, deliberate, present, uh, not surprising, I suppose, forthcoming, curious, generous, and, and smart, really, really smart. So let's talk to him. Good, man. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Cool. Thanks for uh, making a trip out here, man. No. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to yeah, chat it's, a bit. Uh, it's, it's been a long time in the making. I think we first got connected through Noah Lang at Stride, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. In 2011 or 12 right. or something. It's been a couple years. Or, or 2013. Yeah, it's been a long time. Right. And you did, like you did that, you climbed like a, like a building in San Francisco, yeah. right? For yeah, they took me on, a, they on an urban soloing tour of San Francisco. Right. That's pretty cool, man. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, it was actually it's it's rare that a sponsor takes you on a tour of, of soloing in a city i was like is, i was like is any of this legal or do we have permits for anything and they were like no it'll be fine yeah I was like, cool have you done have you have you been filmed climbing buildings before or is that the only time i had I, a little I know bit you climb buildings but i actually haven't climbed that many buildings but there there was almost a big tv special where i was going to climb a taipei 101 in, in taipei mm -hmm. i think at the time it was the fifth fifth tallest building in the world and so as part of that i did a bunch of practice climbing on buildings so I've done a bunch of stuff around Boulder and Denver and, um, right. It's pretty fun, but, um, but no, I've never climbed that many buildings. Right. It's, it's interesting. I, I actually though, if anybody ever hears this, I still really want to climb Taipei when the, the TV project fell apart. Mm -hmm. And so then the building doesn't really want you to climb it without it, without there being a reason. Right. So I never had the opportunity to climb it, even though I rehearsed it and I'm totally ready. And so if anybody wants to, all I'm the producers ready. that are listening, I'm, right yeah, I'm ready to climb Taipei 101 <laughs> at the drop of a hat. No Has problem. anybody done that? No, no. Uh, well, so um, a French guy, Alain Robert, climbed it with ropes mm -hmm. um, as part of the inauguration of the building or something like that, some kind of event. But um, but I I'm I'm ready to go climb at any time. No free know, solo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By myself. Wow. No, it's it's awesome. It's an amazing building. It's really ornamental. It's overhanging on on sides. It's uh -huh. it's really cool. I would imagine with with a project like that, the wind becomes a huge deal, right? It's funny. Everybody thinks that, but um, 
I don't know. I've never, I mean, there's certainly no worse wind on a building than there is on big cliffs Mm -hmm. and certainly far less wind than there are in the real mountains, Mm -hmm. like in Patagonia. Mm -hmm. Probably a little bit more predictable, right? Because the, the sort of geometry of the building is, is, you know, what to expect. Yeah, actually, I don't know. I would actually hypothesize that a building like Taipei 101 would be less affected by the wind in a way because it's, um, it dominates Taipei. It's so much bigger than the rest of the city. So you're just way above everything else. Uh, Whereas, um, in somewhere like New York city, you might get buffeted by all kinds of crazy winds coming in the corridor. Yeah. You're in corridors. Mm -hmm. But if you're on something that's three times taller than everything else, then it's like, you're just, you know, it's like being on a mountain. You're just, whatever the weather is, is is what you're getting. Right. Cool. So you just, uh, you just came from New York. Did a little yeah. bit of a press yeah. thing yeah. <laughs> in the wake Just of this little, Antarctic little Antarctica yeah. trip. Yeah. So let's can we talk about that? A yeah, little bit? for sure, for sure. I mean, unbelievable, right? This was it's a pretty cool trip. It's pretty cool. Uh, uh, maybe just describe it for people that are listening who aren't familiar with what you just accomplished. Uh, well, I, I mean, I don't know if I accomplished anything, well, but it, it, was a, it was a North Face expedition to Antarctica. Mm-hmm. And so there were six of us um, who were climbers on the team. And then there was a seventh filmmaker. And, um, and we basically just went to this area in Queen Maudland, which is one of the, the sectors of Antarctica, mm-hmm. um, explored by the Norwegians. And so we went to this area that's the Norwegian word for the, the wolf's jaw. It's like a basically serrated teeth in the shape of a jaw. It's like a big U shape of mountains. It, it looks like a wolf's jaw. Yeah, it's crazy. Especially from the air, it looks like a wolf jaw. And, and jaw. from what I understand, it wasn't even discovered until like the 90s. Um, that, no, it wasn't. It wasn't climbed on until the oh, 90s. Oh, I see. Um, okay. it, so the whole area had been mapped through uh, aerial photography. And actually, randomly, I think the Nazis had dropped little leaflety things to claim it as uh, as part of Germany in the 1930s or 40s. Uh-huh. But um, uh, but yeah, the peaks weren't actually climbed until the 90s. Wow, that's amazing. It's, it's really difficult to get there. I mean, yeah, I mean, I would <laughs> you know. think like with a project like that, it's the logistics have to be yeah. insane, and not just complicated and difficult, but also very expensive. Mm-hmm. And so it sort of requires a sponsor like the North Face or the people that went there the first in the 90s were a Norwegian. It was like a Norwegian national pride. It was like a very big expedition right. from Norway. So it's but, you, Conrad Anchor, yeah, Jimmy Cedar Chin, Wright, Jimmy Chin, Cedar, and then Savannah Cummins and Anna Pfaff, mm-hmm. who are both uh, also Mountaineers. With I Memphis. saw some of the footage that they aired uh, during the CBS thing that you guys did, and uh, I was like, it's so epic to, to it's, see it. But I'm like, how are you, like, here's one of the questions I have, just in general with all of these things that you do, like, there's always somebody filming, whether it's Jimmy Chin or, or somebody mm-hmm. else. and and half the time these are like like cedar there's a lot of footage of him holding the camera like how do you do what you're trying to do and have to pay attention to like documenting the thing i mean i mean that's a big question but so one of the really nice things about filming with cedar is that the filming feels exactly like it would with a friend like you're just out doing your normal thing and whenever you can you just pull the camera out and like exactly Mm -hmm. how you would shoot selfies of each other if you were just um Basically, I documented, I shot a lot of video on my iPhone so that there would be material of cedar climbing because he he had a real camera. I mean, mm-hmm. still small that he kept in his jacket. But um, but basically, we just film each other. We just have a good time. Right. And anytime I'm taking my camera out to get a, a panorama so I can show my girlfriend or something, because I, I was taking photos from every summit because they're like, we're in this crazy place. It's uh-huh. a one, once in a lifetime trip. Like, I want to go home and show my family because it's cool. So every time you take your camera out, you also just shoot a little like, oh, here uh-huh. we are. We're having this nice experience. Right. But um, so then Cedar, I mean, his style of filmmaking is to turn that into a movie mm-hmm. that's actually watchable. And so and who's then, handling like the drone photography? So that was the seventh guy, this guy, Pablo Durana. Uh-huh. He's um he's a filmmaker from from California, the Bay Area. Right. But he is the world's most interesting man. He's he's amazing. He's uh he was on an expedition with me in Angola. And then I sort of recommended him for this trip. And then Cedar hired him as, as the cameraman for this uh-huh. trip. But um. 
he he was like a collegiate runner he's fit as he's very very fit uh-huh. you can swear um, yeah am i allowed to curse on the yeah, show you can swear uh, yeah he's uh he's very fit mm-hmm. um you know like four minute mile type of fit wow. and then but also climbs 513 which is like a very mm-hmm. difficult level of climbing and um so we would all be out doing our thing climbing mountains and then you'd see pablo like skiing by with a 60 pound sled with a bunch of big drones to go shoot oh and you're God. just like Pablo was sleeping with all the batteries in his sleeping bag, like on his chest, basically. So to keep the laptops from freezing at night and then to keep all the drone batteries and very camera batteries. So he was sleeping with all the batteries in his sleeping bag. And then he'd wake up every three hours to move the solar panels around his tent. Cause, oh um, my God. you know, cause there's 24 hours of sunlight, yeah. but you still have to, the sun's still moving. So yeah, you have yeah, to, yeah. but, um, so yeah, basically Pablo never slept a full night and just oh toiled every, he's, he's an amazing, it was amazing. Wow. It's like a different level of fitness and, and he's so motivated and kind. He's just like having a great time. Uh-huh. Like, whoa. So, so you guys all get to, um, Cape town, right. And you got hung up for a little while because of weather trying to get, you know, find your way to Antarctica. Right. Yeah. So when we got to, there'd been a big storm and there'd been a meter of fresh snow on an, on a, uh, three mile long runway, I think it is uh-huh. of ice. Cause you're landing on a sheet of ice. So basically they have to clear this enormous sheet of ice Mm -hmm. um, and that's to land at the logistical base. And then from there we took a smaller plane to the actual base camp on a, in the glacier, like in the wolf's jaw. Was that the like really rickety old plane? I read something about like some ancient plane that you guys Um, had to take. uh, That might've been on the first expedition um, because Conrad had been there before a long Uh, time ago. I think um, when he went with Alex Lowe. Yeah, exactly. I think our trip had our planes were up to code. Uh It all felt safe. So you land on ice. Oh, or no, maybe actually, maybe what you read about was um, when we landed at the logistic base, the flight from Cape Town to Antarctica, the flight there was on this uh, Russian cargo jet. So we were sitting on wooden benches with exposed wiring all around and all the cargo is just held down by nets. And it was pretty amazing. (laughs) That's probably like a fairly long flight, right? Yeah, six hours. Oh my God. But, um, But somehow... It's funny because when you fly six hours across the states, you're like, "Oh, this is such a long flight." But when you're flying six hours to Antarctica, you're just like kind of giddy and excited. I uh-huh. mean, you know, you're going right, to Antarctica. Right, right. It was pretty cool. So you land but, on ice, and then how do you get to like the Wolf's Jaw? So then we took a twin otter, like a little small plane, mm-hmm. like a propeller plane, and that has skis on it, and it can kind of land wherever. And so that uh, just dropped us off in the glacier. Right. And so the idea is you're going to summit these six peaks and do it in 10 days yeah i don't know i think cbs ran something about six peaks but there are actually tons of peaks there um uh-huh. i climbed i climbed 14 different summits that i counted while right. i was there some of them were pretty insignificant but it, but a bunch of them were really cool uh-huh uh, and yeah and there was no plan we just showed up there expecting to climb as much as we could right and so you just set up like a base camp i mean i saw the huge like yellow tent yeah the two meter dome with it it yeah. looked like you had to dig like you know dig holes for that right yeah well the cook tent is a big dome that sits but then you dig in to make the kitchen, which is awesome because then you can make the counters whatever height you want. You mm-hmm. make the seats whatever height. You know, you tuck the cooler into the counters. It's all like built in. I mean, it's like sculpture. It's, it's pretty right. fun to create your kitchen the way you want it. Uh-huh. But, How long does that take to like, I mean, once you get there and then you got to like, well, I guess it's it's daylight 24 hours. Yeah, so it's, it's daylight like 24 hours. And when we landed, we probably spent the next five or six hours digging, just like setting up our tents, digging uh-huh. holes, like digging the latrine, things like that, you know, setting up our situation so that things are sheltered from the wind and also like settled in enough that nothing's going to disappear. Right. Um, but I mean, in the grand scheme of things, five hours to set up a camp that you're going to live in for several weeks is mm-hmm. really not that hard. So how long were you down there in total? Uh, the whole expedition, I think it was six weeks with flying oh, okay. to Cape town and then right, waiting right, in Cape right. town. But, but so in, we, we waited five days in Cape town and then we waited f- maybe five days in the logistics base, um, Novo, this Russian air base. And then, so the time on the glacier in our actual camp was only 17 days or something, Right. but it was supposed to be closer to a month, I think. Uh-huh. Um, 
but then realistically we climbed i climbed enough you know i was like this is perfect (laughs) and then they actually flew us out slightly early just because the way the weather was but um conrad and jimmy had finished their objective and cedar and i had climbed everything we wanted to do and um, we were all just like it's time to go home and conrad had been there before but for you guys, you're sort of, it's unchartered territory. Like, you know, one of the things I know that you, you're you pretty meticulous about is, you know, really mapping what you're going to do and all the preparation that goes into these routes. But this well, is a different th- kind of climbing. That's, that's for big free solos uh-huh. and stuff. Um, I mean, I love the adventurous climbing where you just walk out, look at a mountain and choose what looks like the easiest way and just have an experience on mm-hmm. it. I mean, I, I enjoy that as well. But, um, but certainly for the big free solos, the type of climbing that I'm maybe more well known for. Um, that's more about the planning and mm-hmm. the, the preparation, mm-hmm. but, um, but Antarctica was cool. I mean, I hadn't, I've never had an experience like that because yeah. I mean, it, like, it feels like you're in space and you're climbing with like ski boots and gloves on, you know, it's yeah. a whole different thing. I only climbed, I think of everyone on the team, I was maybe the only person that climbed in ski boots a couple times. And that was just because, um, the climbing was relatively easy for me and I wanted to keep my feet warm. Mm-hmm. I was just like, I want to be comfortable. Right. But, um, for the most part, we would ski to the base and then we would change into rock shoes and then climb the rock and climbing shoes, but mm-hmm. really big ones with big socks and everything. Mm-hmm. And then you'd kind of climb barehanded if you had to, but keep gloves on if you could, if it was easy enough. Right. And then honestly, the difficult part was getting back down off everything because there are no established anchors. Nobody's climbed anything before, so there no, there's no way down. Right. So once you get to the top, you then have to just use the equipment that you have to create anchors to slowly repel back down the mountain. And how many of the the climbs were you just inventing new routes versus sort of tracking what um, somebody else them, had done? Basically. Oh wow! Uh huh. Um, there was one route, the last route that we climbed, which is on I think the second tallest formation in the region. Um, we did the first free ascent and the second, maybe second or third ascent total of this Norwegian route that they'd put up in the nineties. Uh-huh. And um, so that one had a bunch of ropes left on it and stuff like left over from from their expedition because they'd kind of like escaped in a storm and left some ropes on it. But for us, we're like, oh, signs of human passage. This is so nice, <laughs> yeah. you know, because after a couple of weeks of just doing everything mm-hmm. totally virgin, you know, it was nice to see some some signs of passage and know that you're on the right track right. and that someone else has done it. What but, was the hardest part of the whole thing? Uh, for me, the hard part was constantly thinking you're going to die, mm. honestly. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it's funny because it's been a month and a little over a month since I got home and that sort of fear is starting to fade and you just look back and you're like, oh, it's such a good trip. We had this great time. But every day, like while I was there, each day was like pretty stressful mm-hmm. because we're making so many little decisions that you think is the right decision. It's probably the right call. But like if you just fell and died and wound, you know, there were a lot of times where if Cedar and I had just wound up dead at the base of the wall, people would just be like, well, that's what happens when you're right. repelling in big, big mountains like that that nobody's ever been on. Mm-hmm. Like stuff happens. Right. I don't know. Well, this conversation around fear and death, I mean, this is this comes up. I mean, it's impossible for anybody to have a conversation with you without that. I mean, you get annoyed. You get, no, no, you get I'm, tired I'm, I'm, of like I'm, talking about it. No, I think people I think people should think about that stuff more. Yeah, I mean, so when, when was the last time the average person thought about the mortality and, mm-hmm. and really made choices that could lead to death? I mean, my perspective... Other than lifestyle choices, yeah, like per- uh, eating a Twinkie or whatever. <laughs> right, but right, those right. are so far removed that you don't get that immediate like sense of dread. You yeah. know, they're like, oh my God, I'm so afraid. If I eat this, I'm going to die in 40 years from heart disease. You know, it's like a different... Right. I don't know. Well, I think that, that most of us live our lives in a waking dream and we, we expend a, a, tremendous, a tremendous amount of energy trying to pretend we're not going to die or denying that the inevitable. I, I, I think that's such a, and such in a shame. Ways, really. You have a healthier perspective on it because you're so connected with that 
reality. Yeah, actually, you said uh, I was just in New York for the CBS morning show uh-huh. thing and uh, Gail, Gail King, I guess, like mm-hmm. big TV. Uh, I, I, I never met her, obviously, but she came out. Uh, she was one of the hosts of this morning show and she was like, oh, you guys survived this experience. Like, didn't you think you're going to die? And I, I was like, whoa, I mean, we're all going to die. Like, I mean, you're going right. to, you know, we're each going to die here. It doesn't necessarily matter. <laughs> and it was like, oh, the conversations are really dark. <laughs> that was and what I was she like, wanted to hear. Well, it was just funny. I was like, I wonder when the last time Gail was really thinking about her mortality, you know, mm-hmm. when the last time Gail was like, oh, I could die right now, mm-hmm. you know? And I was like, huh, I guess people, I mean, particularly if you're living in a city like that, you just don't think about like death that much. Well, I think you our know? culture is set up to to encourage us to not think about it as well. You know, we're sort of, you think? We're, yeah, I think we're, I know, but... we're encouraged to seek security and, you know, lead these safe lives and protect ourselves. And when the subject of death comes up, it's uncomfortable. It makes people or uncomfortable. Yeah, it makes people sure. uncomfortable. We don't I know, talk I don't see why, it. because it's one of those things that shouldn't be uncomfortable because we're all going to die. You know, it's like going to the bathroom or something. Mm-hmm. It's like, we all go to the bathroom a bunch of times a day. It's like, it's part of being an animal. Like this is, but we I try mean, to remove it from die. our consciousness and awareness. Like I've only seen one dead person in my entire life when Julie's father passed away. Mm. We happened to be there. But beyond that, I've never, I'm like, everybody dies, but I've never seen a dead person. Huh. Why is that? Like, and it made me think about that in a way that I hadn't before. Huh. And I think it's because it's just, it's not part of polite culture, right? Like we're not, we're not comfortable talking about it. We want to remove it from our awareness. As soon as it happens, like let's get it out of our consciousness or you think, our line of sight. I don't know. I, I, I don't totally feel that way, but I mean, I guess, yeah, well, that, that might be don't. true for, yeah. it might be true for society in general. But so, I mean, if we're, if we're going dark, um, I mean, pretty heavy. So before the Antarctic trip, it's been a really grim year for rock climbing. There are mm-hmm. like a lot of big accidents and fatalities and just terrible things have happened in climbing this year it's been it's been pretty hard like several friends and um i don't know it's just been rough but so my girlfriend was pretty unexcited about me going to antarctica just because it's you know fundamentally a dangerous trip mm-hmm. no i mean it's, it's just i mean you're out there you know like there is risk involved for sure because you're alpine climbing in the middle of nowhere and so it, like there is definitely risk and she was like a little worried it had been a hard year and then the day before I was going to leave, we were sport climbing in Red Rock and we, like there was this terrible accident. This guy died like right next to us. And, um, and actually it was my first time in climbing, seeing, seeing a fatality like that. I mean, I've been around a lot of accidents and I've certainly had known a lot of people that have had things happen like that, but I've never just like seen somebody, you know, we came around the corner and there were people doing CPR on this, on this poor guy that, I mean, like he looked he dead and yeah, he, well, I, I think, I think he was basically just dead from the beginning, but they did CPR on him for half an hour until the paramedics got there and, and the, the fireman was like, this guy's dead. And then, so they stopped. Right. So how yeah, do but, you process that? Like, did that make you think about things differently? I mean, you're, you're, you've lost a lot of friends. Yeah. Yeah. Though, I mean, you always justify in different ways. And, and, and the thing is, I mean, I guess for me, I think I'm pretty you know, I've sort of accepted a certain level of risk and I kind of know that there's a certain danger. And mm-hmm. so when you see things, see accidents happen, you're like, yeah, I mean, I, I know that there's a degree of risk involved mm-hmm. and that's, I mean, like that is the degree of risk. Yeah. You, uh, you said one time I saw somewhere you said high consequence is not the same as grave danger. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, well, so I often differentiate between risk and consequence because people mm-hmm. are like, oh, what you're doing is super risky. And I'm always like, oh, what I'm doing is super high consequence, meaning that if if something happened, I would for sure die uh, talking about free soul and mm-hmm. walls. Um, 
but it's not necessarily risky because the risk is is the likelihood of me actually falling off and that you know you can't really determine that from seeing a picture or seeing a video clip mm-hmm. or something because you know that's something that only i really know how solid i am on the wall mm-hmm. like how likely i am to fall off of it mm-hmm. but no i think it's similar to you know when you see someone like laird hamilton you know surfing a gigantic yeah, wave yeah. and you're like how can to me that looks very that? yeah it's like well this yeah. guy's flirting with death and yeah what people don't realize or, or perhaps underappreciate is the lifetime of work that went yeah. into building up to that i mean he can hold his breath for for minutes i'm sure and he could be pinned down and he can survive a lot that if i fell off a wave like that i would for sure die i don't even swim that well i can't but he also knows how long. to make those micro you know? adjustments yeah <clears throat> while yeah, he's he on the wave on board, so that yeah. he can stay on his board right and but he also probably you, but he also probably appreciates the difference in the consequences because falling off a wave like that isn't guaranteed death i mean big wave surfers are rarely on a wave that you're mm-hmm. going to die i mean people wreck all the time and they do occasionally die but it's not like guaranteed the certainty yeah yeah i mean they often get pulled out or or swim out or you know whatever like they they manage i don't know the degree of consequence is different but the risk is probably much higher because they probably fall off quite a bit more right you but know, i think it's, it's just, more about it's more about the relationship between the understanding or appreciation of the certainty of death vis-a-vis you know the fear like the fear impulse and from what i understand like you've just developed an ability to have a presence of mind and a mindfulness to manage that in a way that is unique i don't know yeah. i mean that's yeah well like, i, I, I read know. the thing about that's... um how you had like the mri in your brain and, they, yeah. and the guy was like your amygdala does doesn't doesn't fire no no that was the guy before the mri oh, well, but, okay. yeah if, if you read the article there was um there was a quote from a guy being like i bet his amygdala doesn't work but then when we did mm. the whole uh the the brain scan the functional mri and everything uh they found that i do have an amygdala and well of course you have one. it does yeah well i mean there, there <laughs> maybe there you don't a, like they yeah. were expecting not yeah. to see it well I, I was sort of like oh i hope everything's <laughs> in there don't. yeah i mean well it's always a little uh-huh. weird when when someone takes a look under the hood you're like i hope it's all in there uh-huh. but um but no all the parts were there and the and it, the amygdala was functioning it just wasn't firing during this certain test um but right. I, they were I showing you like images like graphic images yeah they were showing graphic like... images and i was like well why would that trigger a fear response because it's just a picture who cares but had they mm-hmm. put you know poisonous snakes into the freaking machine with me i'm sure right. i'm sure i would have been all, all lit up right 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 <laughs> you know but uh, your I mean, response just level. was 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 different different from like a control group yeah response right yeah and and i think one of the notable things in the article was that i mean this is this isn't real science this is like an anecdotal it was like me versus one other climber uh-huh. um who was the control he was another uh i think a phd student or something that worked in that lab who also rock climbed so since we were roughly the same size and age and demographic they just you right. know compared us and he also felt like the pictures weren't very stimulating because i mean it's just random pictures right. but his brain still lit up in the way that you would expect whereas mine didn't um but the thing is, the interpretation can either be that through, you know, 10 years of systematic practice, I've sort of dampened my response mm-hmm. or I'm just slightly handicapped in some way. And that's why I've gotten good at free soloing mm-hmm. is because my brain is never lit up like that. But so, you know, I personally, because I, I know how much I've, I've grown over time in my climbing. And so I see it more as a practice thing just right. because I know that I couldn't have done the things that I do now 10 years ago because I just hadn't hadn't learned how yet, you know, hadn't practiced. Right. Um, but I'm sure other people can interpret it in whatever, whatever way they want. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that it's a it's the result of like an intention and an and a, and a, and a sort of diligent focus on honing that over the years. Because from what I, I mean, my perspective, and tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems like your what distinguishes you um, 
isn't necessarily your physical capabilities. It's your ability to like be present and manage, you know, the mental chatter so that you can be completely in the moment of what you're doing and keep the, keep that like, you know, that fear response or whatever it is at bay so that you can be extremely focused over like an extended period of time. Possibly. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to know because I don't know what goes on in other people's minds. So, you know, I'm like, as far as I'm concerned, everybody thinks the same way I do. Mm -hmm. so I'm like, oh, it's totally normal. It's totally natural. But then. But this is all you've ever done and known. Yeah, well, exactly. And so I'm like, oh, maybe this is a little unusual. <laughs> yeah. like, I don't know. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, you have this like, oh, shucks kind of, you know, reaction to all of this. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I well, know it's because you, it seems totally natural. Right. Because it's when, who when you're you, doing it's, it. Yeah, it's exactly. Like, it's who you are. Yeah, it's a fundamental. Core. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't know differently. Yeah, but though I, I I think as I get older, I appreciate more and more that it's maybe a little bit different just uh -huh. because um, like hanging out with my girlfriend and uh, like getting to know other people. Well, you know, they have like sort of normal anxieties and they like have, you know, they tweak about things more and they stress things more. And I'm just like, I just don't like mm -hmm. ever, you know, like full right. stop really. I mean, not to say that I don't worry about some stuff or like have stress in my life a little bit, but I just like do not, I don't know, very little, you know, there's yeah, like a so very little probably, background. probably is chatter. like a nature and nurture thing. Yeah, I'm like I don't know, mm -hmm. I don't know. But taking it back to the beginning, you know, when you when you first when you started climbing, like when you were like 11 or 12, yeah, or, or like maybe that. 10, yeah, or 10 yeah, and 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 it wasn't like initially out of the gate, like oh, this guy is no. just a phenom. No, and that's the thing is, I've never been physically gifted at all. I mean, after 20 years of of regimented practice and training, I'm mm -hmm. still not as good as, as a lot of people that. You know, there are a lot of people with physical gifts in climbing, and I'll just never be as as strong a climber as mm -hmm. they are. But I mean, climbing is a big sport, and people sort of go in their own directions. And so, if I was to ask Conrad or Jimmy or any of these other guys, like what what makes you different or unique or or special or able to do the things that you've been able to do that no one else has been able to do, like what would they say? I don't know. Actually, it's interesting you mentioned them because in a way they both sort of represent a generation before me, like slightly more old school adventure. Um, you know, like big mountain type experience. Mm -hmm. And so actually, so compared to their generation, sort of like the big wall type dudes, I am much more physically gifted as a climber. But then compared to my contemporaries and people of, you know, coming up in the new generation of climbing, I'm very, very weak by comparison right. to them. You know, like standards have been steadily changing. And so compared to somebody like Conrad, I'm like a much better technical climber. And that's because I grew up climbing in a climbing gym and, and, uh, you know, starting at the age of 11 or 12, I was practicing technique and working mm -hmm. on my footwork and, you know, I got stronger fingers. Whereas Conrad wasn't climbing until he was an adult and he was right. climbing outdoors and he was never, it's a different kind of climbing. Yeah. It's very different. Um, and you kind of came up at this perfect time yeah, where really climbing did. became a thing that you could actually do as a living. I mean, if you well, had that's, been born that's, 10 years earlier, it might've been a different yeah, situation. For sure. And not, not just that, um, that being able to be a professional climber sort of became an option for me, but also I grew up with gyms. I, I'm like, I'm the first generation mm -hmm. of gym climbers. Um, and now kids growing up today have much better gyms yeah. and, and they're climbing at a much higher level. I mean, much better facilities, much more talent. And you're just, you're seeing a different level. And the awareness is so mainstream now. They can point yeah. to people like yourselves and say, there's a path towards, you know, being in that situation. Yeah, I mean, you were still yeah. a little bit early. Like when you decided yeah. you were going to do this, it wasn't like, oh, I can do this for a living. Well, like, yeah, I'm just going to be I this nomadic. Exactly. I didn't even decide. I just, you know, I was like, oh, mm -hmm. I'm just going to go climbing all the time. And eventually it sort of morphed into making a living from it. Mm -hmm. But um, it's interesting at events now having kids come up and say, I want to be a professional climber. And I'm like, huh, you know, like that was never <laughs> yeah. like, really, like I didn't even know. But I mean, that's cool, you know.
Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, waking up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple, search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. 
Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. seems interesting the way that it kind of developed for you because you did you, you went to Berkeley right and and then well for a year up, right yeah. you went for a year yeah. you're going to be an engineer and you ended up dropping out but that was sort of around the t- like your father passed away yeah, right someone before. else passed away in your life as well uh, actually both my grandfathers had right. died in the previous year or two and and when you look back on that what is the do you, do you feel like that was part did that give you a perspective on how you wanted to live your life that compelled you in a, in a I way mean, looking back on it it probably um it definitely added a sense of urgency to things a little bit or, or a certain um a good reminder that life is finite and that mm-hmm. you know you should do the things that you want to do mm-hmm. but um it's funny though because you know looking back on it now 10 years out you're like oh i dropped out of school to become a climber but when when it was happening i was taking a semester off so i could go climbing and then mm-hmm. i took another semester off and then i took the next 20 semesters off or whatever right. you know it's not like i dropped out i just like didn't ever go back right but you but. you you had this thing that you loved and mm-hmm. you wanted to express that in your life and you wanted that to be a bigger part of, of who you are yeah something that i cared about much more than right. education at that time right and, and but most people would have may have just clamped that down and said yeah but i gotta get through college i gotta you know the social mm-hmm. pressures the mm-hmm. familial pressures like mm-hmm. and then slowly over time that you know that that climbing instinct just turns into weekend expeditions and then yeah. once a month and then you're 45 years old and you're like what the fuck happened to yeah my i mean i'm just kind of lucky that it worked out that way in some ways mm-hmm. i mean I, I definitely felt all those societal pressures and, and familial expectations and all that and so i mean part of it was um you know both my parents were, were professors um and then you know and it was just expected that, that the kids are going to college you know mm-hmm. that my sister and i would both go to school and get an education um so when you stopped out what did your mom say well, she was fairly supportive. Or she, well, the thing is, it wasn't that I was quitting college. It was that I was taking a semester taking a off. Um, and also that year I'd been invited to Youth Worlds. Um, like I'd gotten second in national. So it was mm-hmm. kind of like, oh, you know, go to Scotland, do Youth Worlds, mm-hmm. uh, you know, climb a little bit in Europe or something, like take the semester off because it was during the school semester. And um, so it was a really good excuse to take off a few months. Like dad had just died. I was going to Worlds. It was all sort of like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, things were a bit of a change. And so I took six months off and then I just, you know, didn't right. go back. <laughs> but so there was never a point where it's like, I'm never going to go to college again. Cause I'm right. sure had I said that she would have been a little bit more, you know, resistant. Mm-hmm. But, um, but then it just sort of played out that now I'm, now I'm an old homeless person. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, no, it, no it organically just grew out of this thing that you just loved, right. Yeah. You yeah. know, and there's, there's something really pure and beautiful about that. Like, it wasn't like, I'm going to be the best climber in the world. You were just like, this is what I want to do. Yeah. It's just and fortunate that it all sort of wants worked to, out. You know, sort of put the path in front of me to follow that. Like I'm going to follow that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I though, think you, it's funny because when you're on the path, it never, you know, you never think you're following a path. Right. You know, I, I was just like. I was living in a car, living in tents, just going climbing a lot. And it doesn't feel like a path mm-hmm. until many years later when you look back and you're no, like, yeah. I was very committed to rock climbing. <laughs> yeah. But at the it's time, you're just way. like, what am I doing? Yeah, you know? it's always that way. I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, and it yeah. looks like, oh, well, everything lined up perfectly for you yeah. to be in this point. But I think people underappreciate how perhaps confusing it can be when you're in that and you're not quite sure, you know, whether it's going to be a left turn or a right turn yeah. or how, yeah, you're gonna, sure. how you're going to actually buy gas next week or any yeah. of those things. I mean, and with climbing too, you climb a couple of days and then you have to take a rest day. And so when you are young and unemployed and uneducated and you're taking rest days, you're like, what am I doing with my life? Uh-huh. You know, cause like you have to rest <laughs> because physically your whole yeah. body hurts. 
but on the days where you're not climbing you're like what what am i doing because mm-hmm. like you know I'm, I'm not climbing and i'm not doing anything else and right. I, i'm like my life sucks you know but there's a community like, days are of, tough like, like that. they call it the dirt bags right yeah like that, dirt that was, bag yeah sort of thing so there, there's support within that group kind of that was never my scene that much though mm-hmm. i mean obviously i am a full you know i've lived in yeah. the car for 10 years but um but I was never big into the hippie lifestyle, climbing, you know, the, the dudes hanging out, smoking weed around the campfire, right. enjoying the stars. Like that was never really my scene. I think because I grew up in a climbing gym and I've always cared a little bit mm-hmm. more about the performance side of climbing and climbing well. But but that's what makes you um, emblematic of the next generation. You know, it's sort of like know. you could see the same thing in surfing, right? Totally. It's, yeah, the old lifestyle dudes that are like, oh, right. you know, uh, dude, yeah, bro, you know. I'm on the beach, I'm having a good time. You know, and then the younger guys who come up and they're like athletes and yeah. they're committed and yeah. they're trying to, you know, go to the next level with all of I know, this. and it kind of makes sense that you just can't really reach the next level without a higher commitment to performance. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's why, I mean, the climbing's in the Olympics in 2020, which is kind of a big thing for the sport. Right. How do you feel um, about that? I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it. I think yeah. it'll be cool. I mean, it has nothing to do with me because I'm too old and too weak and, you know, I won't be any, I'm hoping to be a commentator or some uh-huh. kind. I just want to go and spectate. Uh-huh. But um, I think it'll be amazing though. I mean, the people competing are, are going to be amazing climbers. But it's, it's the natural kind of evolution of these kinds of sports. But you always see a little bit of resistance with the old guard who are trying to protect that purity. Right? Yeah, that, I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm just not quite old enough, I guess, for uh-huh. that. I'm excited. I think it'll be cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'll for sure watch it. It's going to be, it's going oh, to be cool. Yeah. Um, I met you first at that, at a, a screening of Valley Uprising, mm-hmm. um, in LA. And that, that movie was super interesting because it kind of addressed that, that, that sort of change of the guard. Like yeah. it, it, it really looked at the, it unpacked that history of what developed mm-hmm. in, Yosemite and Yosemite and is a good place right. to see that mm-hmm. that generational change because Yosemite is like each generation of climbers has been so distinctly different and it's it's really played out, you know, on the same walls for 50 years. Right. It's pretty cool. And so are there young kids that you're aware of coming up right now where you're like, oh, my God, not quite yet. Yeah. But um, I think but I think that the big wall traditional climbing scene in Yosemite sort of lags behind the gym climbing mm-hmm. scene, mostly because you get really, really strong in the gym and then you start sort of taking that outside on more adventurous things like the walls of Yosemite. Mm-hmm. So I kind of think that the next generation of Yosemite climbers um, are still a few years out. Right. Know? But maybe but, by the Olympics or maybe or the certainly, next Olympics. Certainly in, within five years, I would expect to be seeing some stuff that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's really exciting. Well, there's no question that you've inspired, no. you know, the next generation of young kids who want to come mm-hmm. up and emulate. Yeah, there are definitely a couple people that, I, that I'm like, yeah. oh, you know, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see but how it takes, it ta- yeah, it takes a little bit of yeah, time yeah, to yeah. See, see how it plays out. Right. So can and, we talk about yeah. El Cap a little bit? Yeah, I mean, let's. I mean, come on, dude. Like, I just. So awesome. I can't even like my hands, just thinking about it, my hands start sweating and I can't, I can barely bring myself to like watch the footage. It's just so nerve wracking. And I know that like this, this was your moment. Like this is something you prepared for, for a very long time. And in that lead up, like in that preparation phase, like what were you doing specifically to wrap your head around this that perhaps people aren't aware of? Um, I don't know. Like what was the secret? Um, yeah. 20 years of hard work. No, um, I mean, you knew I don't every know. foothold going all the way up, right? Uh, almost. I mean, I knew all the ones that mattered. Uh-huh. Um, cause on the easy climbing, you don't bother to memorize stuff cause you just climb it and it's, mm-hmm. it feels like walking. But on the harder parts, for sure, I knew I knew everything that mattered. Right. And actually, I still know almost everything. You know, I still remember almost all of it. Mm-hmm. Certainly, all the hardest parts I still have totally memorized. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know. I mean, it's it's yes, the lead up. I'm like, 
where do I even consider the lead up starting or finishing, you know, because I was, I'd been right. thinking about it for so many years and imagining it for so many years, but then I didn't actually start seriously working on it until the last sort of year and a half. Mm-hmm. And then even that I basically spent the fall season and then the spring season when I actually did it. Um, basically that year I was actively training and preparing and memorizing and mm-hmm. you know what you would think of as, as actually preparing yeah 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 i mean it's but, that that adage of you know ask a master painter how long it took them to paint the painting and they'll tell you their whole life yeah i mean i mean to some extent because i've been thinking about all caps since 2009 so i mean mm-hmm. that's um yeah it had been eight years of dreaming about it mm-hmm. and the thing is and it had taken me that long to wrap my head around it and i wouldn't have been able to start physically preparing and actually training and memorizing holds and doing all that stuff if I didn't believe that it was possible and it had sort of taken me eight years to believe that it was possible. Mm-hmm. And and beyond the kind of practical academic preparation and the physical preparation for it, do you have specific visualization techniques or mindfulness practices that you employ to like prepare your brain to handle no, it? No, I mean, that's just a, another experience thing. Um, I don't know. So I, I've never I've never meditated or anything. I've like cause I don't really know mindfulness techniques, or, uh-huh. you know, anything like that. But um, but I, when I visualize roots, I mean, basically, I just let my mind wander through it, and I, and I, I generally gravitate towards the parts that I need to. So the harder parts, you know, I'll just sort of think my way through certain sequences, or I'll imagine what it'll feel like, or um. But I mean, a lot of it's just daydreaming, you know, thinking about how happy you'll be when you grab mm-hmm. the final hold of a hard sequence, or like how amazing it'll be to get onto the summit. Or conversely, thinking about how terrible it would be to blow the left foot and slip off the last move and fall, the, you know, fall right. from 2,500 feet or whatever. Um, so, I mean, I'm definitely thinking through. And from the the crux, the the most difficult part of El Cap is, is about 2,300 feet off the wall. It's at least 2,000 feet off the ground. And, um, and it's only this... 15 or 20 foot section that's really difficult mm-hmm. and that's it's got the this, very end right no it's no. the it's the crux boulder problem it's pitch 23 which is you know two-thirds of the way up the mm-hmm. wall and um and it's yeah it's maybe 20 feet of difficult climbing but it's pretty hard and it has like some low angle terrain beneath it so like if you fell off you'd hit this kind of sloping ledge you know 60 or 80 feet below you but you wouldn't stop uh-huh. you know and so you'd hit that and it'd be like a little kicker and you'd shoot out and you'd maybe <laughs> oh you'd maybe God. land on el cap spire which is uh-huh. 250 feet below you but obviously you die if you fell 250 mm-hmm. feet um or you would miss the spire and go all the way to the ground in which case you're really dead but you'd probably still be alive as you free fall for not you know like i fully thought all that stuff through because right. i mean it's important because like had there been a bigger ledge then you'd be like oh if i fell then i would just stick the ledge and i wouldn't even necessarily die and so then it would kind of change your your uh you know the the equation of risk and consequence and all that you're like well if you're not going to die if you fall off the hard part then yeah. it's like you don't need to be 100 percent solid in the same way uh-huh um in this case though you would for sure die if you fell right. from any of it so but. you're you you have to live in that reality and and embrace it right yeah i mean and you I have think to think it, yeah you think like, it all through you can't just be like well that's not going to happen so i'm not going to think about it like no you have to go there and like no no i definitely go there for everything yeah. i mean i think about what it would be like if it started raining you know, um, what would happen if, if, uh, like my shoe tore in half or something mm-hmm. like one of my earliest sense of El Cap in 2006 or seven, I think, uh, one of the first times I did free rider, the route that I ultimately sold it. Um, I stepped on this particular foothold and, um, and it like cut a hole in my shoe. Basically mm-hmm. it's like a really sharp little point. And, uh, and I climbed the whole rest of the route with this big flapping hole in my shoe. But, um, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, it's important to think about like what yeah, would happen I mean, if, you, certain... if you tore your shoe, <laughs> you'd be like, that sucks. There's plenty but... of variables that you can't control. 
right? So you 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 do your best to control all the things that you have but d- you, domain over. Yeah, you may not be able to control them, but you can at least think them through so that if they happen, it's not like, oh no, right. you know, you're like, all right. But if well, a crazy freak gust of wind. Doesn't matter. Really? Yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> How I mean, does that I've, not matter? Well, because I've climbed in a lot of places with really, really strong wind mm. and you just kind of know what strong wind feels like. Uh-huh. And if you think even 50 mile an hour wind as a percentage of your body weight, it's like, it's not that much force on you. It's like you can still climb at roughly the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most the, the most challenging thing about wind is, is psychologically, like hearing the howling is like really fraying for your mind. Uh, but I mean, if you're focused on doing something, like wind doesn't really matter that much. So when you're on the wall, did was there any misstep along the way, or did you, did you just execute as you envisioned? Yeah, it? everything was everything, everything just was went perfect. Good. Yeah, yeah. Though it was interesting. The morning of, um, I didn't feel you know particularly great. Like I was kind of tired. Um, I sort of hit it right at the end of the season where like I'd been toiling hard for six weeks and training and um, you know there's a certain point where it's like oh you peaked and you're like definitely declining I I was you know I I don't think I hit it quite at the peak peak I hit it sort of at the beginning of the decline Mm. but I mean which is fine because I was still very very fit and I was still ready and it was it's just the way the timing worked out but um, but that morning it was like a little bit overcast um, a little bit cloudy so it stayed sort of humid and warmer during the during the night so when i started climbing it felt really muggy and warm and it, like i was hoping that it would be clear and crisp and right. like a cool Dry. morning yeah but um but it just wasn't and so part of me is like oh these aren't perfect conditions but then i'm like who cares you know because uh, like i've climbed on the route in so many different conditions i was like it can it can be 10 degrees warmer it can mm-hmm. be slightly more humid like it doesn't that doesn't matter did you, you know? feel a sense of pressure though like i am coming off my peak like i need to do this now i don't want to wait another week or for the weather to clear um i mean not exactly pressure pressure but um yeah i mean part of me just knew that if i wait another week it was it was in june 3rd when i did it and uh-huh. so the temperatures are only getting hotter right and the season was kind of winding down and um and I mean, I was just, I just knew I was ready. Uh, my shoes were perfectly broken in. My skin was good. I, I was confident. I just worked on everything. Um, I mean, the thing about waiting another week is that then, uh, like I'd actually been planning on doing it three or four days before, but it, it had rained a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so then I had to spend a day repelling the wall again to make sure that the rain hadn't disturbed. Um, like I had some little tick marks, like little chalk markings on certain holes in key places mm-hmm. that to make sure I could find them with my feet and things. Um, made, wanted to make sure the chalk hadn't washed off in the rain and make sure that none of the hard parts were wet and just, so but the problem is that hiking to the summit and repelling the whole wall makes you pretty tired mm-hmm. and so then then you have to take another rest day and then you can you know so it's one of the things you're like oh yeah i could wait a couple of days for better weather but it's like you know and there's always going to be something right? yeah and then and the <clears throat> thing is that you have to maintain a high degree of fitness before you do it which means you need to be training you need to be climbing you need to be doing other things but that obviously makes you tired and so you kind of have to nail it all perfectly where it's like you've been doing enough training that you feel strong but you're not tired and right you know or not too tired right because actually uh, i'd climbed and hiked the day before but just a little bit of both enough so that it was active and i felt like my body felt good uh-huh. but i wasn't tired tired uh-huh, uh-huh. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of, it's a lot of magic in it, you know, a lot of secret sauce where you're like, cause a lot of it's confidence and you just have to feel good about it. Mm -hmm. And what was, what was the, the manner in which you kind of, uh, let other people in on what you were doing, right? I would imagine you had to be pretty judicious about like who you're sharing this, you know, goal with and, 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 and being clear with how you're going to handle people who are going to try to talk you out of it. Yeah. Actually, nobody really tried to talk me out of it. I mean, most of my, my personal friends, you know, weren't necessarily excited about the idea. They're all just like, uh-huh. oh, really? Right. But, um, but nobody, nobody was like, you shouldn't do that mm-hmm. because, you know, they all sort of respect my decision-making process. And, um, 
Yeah, it's interesting though. So for the eight years, I guess, that I've been dreaming about LCAP, I'd never really talked about it except for maybe with a couple climbing friends is like that would be an amazing dream mm-hmm. but never like i want to do that because it's just a little too it's a little too much mm-hmm. you know and then um and then two years ago i mean it's, it's kind of a long story but basically there's the whole process of making the film around it so um jimmy chin and his wife chai vassar haley mm-hmm. approached me about doing a film project like a documentary film uh like a feature and which is a big opportunity for me as a professional climber and mm-hmm. i was like oh that'd be great like that's cool but the only thing that i cared about filming on or making a movie about was El Cap. And in a way I was like, it's kind of a amazing opportunity to do justice to El Cap, right. you know, because if any climb in the whole world deserves a movie about it, it's El Cap. I mean, it's, right. it's the most beautiful wall in the world. It's like, that is a pinnacle climbing achievement that, you know, should be documented in, in a, in a good way. If it's, if it's ever going to be filmed, it should be done right, right. You know? And so I kind of took it as a cool opportunity to, you know, combine my long-term dream with this big, you know, professional opportunity. And, and in some ways it was good to have a little bit of, it's not added pressure. Cause I mean, they didn't care about what I climbed. They just wanted to make a film with me. And I was the one that was like, we're doing it on El Cap cause that's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And they're like, sweet. Cause obviously that's a, you know, yeah. a very, very photogenic wall. But, um, but it was a little bit good for me to have a little extra, you know, to actually go and start working on it because you know, without having ever talked to anyone about it for years, I just kind of sat on it. It's like, oh, it's too big. It's too big. I don't know. And then once I started talking to my friends about it and it became like a film project and, and then once it was, once we were filming, then I started talking to my friends more about it and, and then it became more real to me yeah, than I actually then worked like, on this it. Is happening. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 And then I started the real process of like, okay, I'm working on it. This is what I'm doing. And then I did it. Uh-huh. Yeah. But And, and you have this, you have a very hangdog loose, like kind of, uh, uh, response to all of this like as I recall um, like when you get to the top you're like yeah I did it. it's cool all right you know what's next oh no no I, when like I got to the, I was, I was like, pretty psyched I mean right. uh, of, of everything I've climbed in my life getting to the top of El Cap I was uh-huh. glowing for even I mean even right now I'm still like pretty psyched I mean it's um, pretty amazing but you have I mean you have this nickname right like no big deal like Alex no big deal yeah I didn't come up with right, that though, but, right? I'm sure you yeah. didn't you know <laughs> but um, no, but El Cap was very meaningful to me for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's probably the first thing I've done in climbing that I'm that I'm really proud of. I'm like, and when's that movie something? coming out? Um, it should be September, October. Oh, cool! Is that National Geographic or North Face? Who, um, it's so National Geographic or, or Fox, I guess, um, which owns it. Uh, you know, it's financed, I suppose. Um, right. But basically, it's it's a uh, Chai and Jimmy um, directing it. And then, you know, I don't know what combination of partners will get it, but it's already um, committed to theaters and everything. So it'll oh, be wow. released in movie theaters. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah. It's not like a little Banff right. film it's festival gonna, right, style right, right, right. short. It's like right. a, it's like a movie movie. Right. Well, Meru like made a big yeah, so impact that's actually, in the, the sort of viability of movies like that. Yeah. And so um, it's basically the same team that made Meru mm-hmm. um, making you know, with bigger backers this time and more, more opportunity is making hopefully mm-hmm. a better version. Right. And I'm, does we'll it tell, I'm sure it tells the whole story behind it. And like, was he filming you like preparing and yeah. all of that? Yeah. They were filming yeah. with me for the two years ahead of oh, time, wow. basically. Uh-huh. Wow. That's exciting. Yeah. And I assume there's a documentary about Antarctica, right? Yeah. That's that'll be more like a traditional climbing documentary. Mm-hmm. I think it'll be really good because it's so beautiful, but the Antarctica film will be much more climbing specific. Mm-hmm. I think the, I mean, the El Cat film will, will be in movies, you know, it's designed yeah. so that someone in middle America that knows nothing about rock climbing can go and see it and, right. and still be inspired and not right. horrified. Right. You know? 
I, th- I think, I hope. No, I, I haven't I'm seen sure. any of it. And, uh, you know, well, I mean, see. that's such a crossover event because y- you don't have to know anything about climbing to watch that and just be astounded. Well, know? that's so kind of the beauty has... of free soloing is mm-hmm. that it's easy for people to understand. <laughs> you know, you look at it and you're like, well, that guy doesn't have anything right, on. Like, what are, where are those ropes attaching yeah, to? Yeah. Without, you know, it's like, yeah. I don't understand. I know people always ask, how do you get the ropes up there? But if there's no rope, then it's like, oh, you just climb up there, huh? Right. <laughs> like, interesting. <laughs> I like stuff. So what is the um, what is the physical training look like for you beyond just the climbing itself? Like, do you what other kind of prep do you do? I mean, basically climbing and uh, and climbing specific training, mm-hmm. which is uh, like fingerboarding, like hanging from small edges in systematic ways, different grips yeah. to isolate your fingers, and then um, opposition stuff. You know, uh, so like working your pushing muscles instead of your pulling muscles, just to keep from getting injured. Mm-hmm. And then um, I was actually doing a fair amount of stretching before LCAP. Just because one of the key, uh, one of the hardest parts on, on the crux is this big karate kick to the left with, you know, it's just this crazy maneuver where you have to put your foot like way over there. And uh, so as I got more flexible, that that became more secure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But, pull-ups, uh, finger pull-ups. Yeah, all, all that kind right. of stuff. Yeah. But um, I mean, for the six months, I guess, preceding the actual real solo, maybe the five months preceding the real solo, I was... I was, as I call it, on the program, you know, so I was, uh, I was getting like a weekly massage to help with the recovery. Um, uh, my diet was, was like pretty locked and I basically didn't eat any sugar or anything. Mm-hmm. I had no supplemental dessert stuff for, you know, five months. Um, I was basically eating vegan diet, but with eggs still, mm-hmm. but, um, but very clean, very wholesome, like not eating out that much. Just like, you know, eating rice and vegetable type meals and just like, I was, I was probably the leanest I've ever been, but part of that because I was doing a lot of exercise, so I was also just burning mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think when I when I, when I I sent the free rider, when when I actually pre-sold all cap, I was probably three or four pounds lighter than I right. normally am. But part of that's just from all the hiking and stuff too. But Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know, but I was very fit, you right. know? Right, right, uh, right. Actually, I, was, uh, I just said I was in New York the last couple of days. I was climbing with one of the cameramen, uh, one of the Verite filmmaker guys that was shooting with me for the actual ascent. And so he was the guy that walked to the base with me and then was also on the summit. Basically, he filmed me taking off the bottom and then he ran around and made it to the top. And then he was on top when I got there, uh-huh. which is pretty cool. Uh-huh. But um, this guy, Claire. And uh, so I was climbing in the gym with him because he's a rock climber also. And um, he was like, oh, when we saw you in the spring, like, yeah, we all were all like, whoa, he looks fit. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, he's been training, which... I mean, I'm, I'm always climbing and always training to some extent, but it was for me a different level. But like a level you know? of focus and specificity for that particular Well, task. and I think because like, I cared about the objective so much more, uh, I was willing to really, <clears throat> you know, uh, people were, you know, offering you cookies or something. You're like, no, no I, don't, I don't need that. Yeah. You know, like I've got a goal. And know? so what does it all mean to you? Like do you, it's it's been a moment, you know, since that occurred, like with a little time and perspective, like you know, how do you think about it? And like, what is the significance of that for you? I don't know. I mean, I think I might need another moment, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's funny because I'm still talking about it a lot and the film project is still ongoing and uh-huh. I've, I've been doing a lot of talks around LCAP. And so it still feels pretty fresh for me, even though it's been uh, six, seven months now. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know, I added a couple of chapters to my book. So there'll be a revised edition of my book coming out. Right. And so I've been writing a lot about it. I've been editing, you know, it's like, I'm still very much in the world of free rider. Yeah. And so, I don't know. I mean, but it's it's definitely the biggest goal or project I've ever had in climbing. Yeah. You know, it's definitely. Well, I think it holds significance for the sport in general. I mean, it certainly raises awareness about what you guys do. And, and, and you know, I think it allows people to have a level of appreciation 
that, that yeah. maybe you know they don't have because it's kind of a it's this weird mysterious subculture i mean any non-climber can definitely walk into yosemite valley and look at the walls and and just think oh my goodness right. like that is outrageous uh-huh i mean and i kind of feel the same way about it. i i mean i was back in yosemite in the fall and i look up at el cap and honestly it doesn't you know even having having climbed without a rope now it, it still looks so crazy yeah, like yeah. what an amazing wall <laughs> like that's so cool i mean do you think like you know when i was 15 or whatever like do you think back to that young kid and and think what would he think of what you well, yeah i mean to do? yeah 10 or 15 years ago the first times i looked at el cap i thought it looked totally crazy and now, I mean, it looks a little bit less so, but you still look at it and you're like, that's an intimidating wall. Like, right. that is a big, crazy wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, I mean, you see people up there and it's like little tiny dots and you're just like, wow, that's really big. Right. It so, is I mean, crazy, man. Yeah. I mean, what is, what is, what do you think is like behind it? Like, what's driving you? What is the, what's the motivation? Is it, is it love? Is it a, is it a sense of adventure? Is it a competitiveness? Like, What's the I mean, psychology behind what motivates you to do all this? I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a lot of things, I guess. But, I mean, part of it is definitely trying to see what I can do, what I'm capable of. I mean, especially with El Cap, it was something that I felt like I was maybe uniquely capable of doing in, in this generation, at least. I mean, I'm sure people will do it in the future more and, you know, it might not be that crazy in 20 years. But, um, but at this point in time, I was like, if anyone is going to do this, I think it could be me if if I apply myself to it and if I really care about it. And, you know, being the first to do something like that, I mean, was that that hasn't always been a huge motivator for me for various projects. Mm -hmm. But for El Cap, I mean, I did kind of I did kind of want that. Right. You know, I was like, I mean, you look at that wall and you're just like, I don't know, it's so proud. Yeah. You know, and, and I'd spent all my years of climbing looking at it as the ultimate objective like the the pinnacle of rock climbing and i was like that could you know i could i could do that that could be me mm -hmm. like, and so then you know i sort of felt obligated to try but. yeah i think there's something that that uh is very you know i keep using the word pure that's not quite the right word that i'm looking for like almost like a um like a childlike innocence about about you know what you do it's so primal it's like there's a mountain. I'm going to climb it. Like there's that it's thing. It's elemental. You get on top. Yeah, it's very, yeah, it's very basic. Or, yeah, and I think to ask someone like yeah. yourself, like, you know, this, I had Conrad on the show a while ago and, and you know, I found the same thing in him. It's like, if you ask somebody like yourself, like, why do you do what you do? It's just like, this is who I am. Mm -hmm. You know, this is, mm -hmm. it's an expression of, of something so deep and, and so innate in my personality and how I'm yeah, hardwired why, why, that why like I, I can't give yeah exactly you know because it's awesome <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know but I mean for you it's it's a love for somebody else they're like that's the most terrifying thing I've ever seen like I wouldn't go anywhere near yeah. that that's fair I mean mm -hmm. that's how I feel like about singing you know if I had to right. go up on stage and sing like, I might as well just kill myself like it would be a disaster <laughs> but a lot of people love you know music performance any of that and, and that's great I mean everybody has something that they're passionate about right so what else scares you then well I don't know I mean th that kind of stuff is probably at the at the core of it like you know public performance yeah being in front of people give talks all the time but that's because I've had a lot of practice now mm -hmm. um I used to be mortified of that like when I was in school if I had to give some kind of presentation in front of the class like terror right you know right just so embarrassed and just so um i don't know yeah i mean i think that's like social situations have always been the most the most traumatizing for me you are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being but 
This quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most, mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Let's talk about the diet stuff. Yeah, I know you want to talk about that. Yeah, well, I want to do a little bit. Of disc- I mean, yeah. that's, you tell me, you know. Well, I don't know, man. Like, tell me, you know, I, I have a general sense, I think, of where you're coming from, but I'm interested in, in your evolution, your relationship with food. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, I mean, so I, I've been vegetarian for five years, I think, maybe, maybe a little more or less. Mm-hmm. Um, and then throughout that, I've sort of dabbled with veganhood from time to time, but never that seriously because it's just hard with all the traveling and just, and especially going on expeditions and various things. Like in Antarctica, I was eating a bunch of meat. Mm-hmm. Um, so the reason I went vegetarian was for the environmental impact, like trying, trying to help the earth, basically. Um, and then I'd also read a bunch about human health and performance stuff. And and then once I stopped eating meat, I started caring more about the ethics a bit, mm-hmm. which I guess kind of made sense that once I stopped killing other creatures that much, then I started caring more about their lives. You know, but it was one of the things that when I was eating a lot of meat, it was, I was like, oh, who cares about chickens, you know? But then once I stopped, I was like, oh, I'm glad to not be, not be killing creatures. You had to opt out of that. Yeah, because, yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, I, I try to do no harm in general. Like I would never just kill some songbird, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like kind of the same with, with food. Was there but, like an influence, like a, a book or a person or? So a bunch of books. Um, I mean, kind of all the classic, like China study type things. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't know, like, yeah, Thrive, uh, the Brendan Fraser Brandon book. Yeah, book. actually, I don't yeah. think I've actually read your book. It's funny. I was yeah. reading through all the different diet books I've read and I was like, I don't think I've read yours. Uh, but I'll give you a copy. Yeah, yeah, Brendan lives oh, yeah, right you up. You do have a million, yeah. million copies <laughs> around there. Yeah. Um, and Brendan lives right up the street. Yeah. Oh, does he? Yeah, that's yeah, cool. Yeah. He's local. Yeah, here. but like I know Scott Jurek. I'm like friends with uh-huh. him and oh, like yeah, read his book. Right. Though I read his stuff after I'd already gone vegetarian and everything. Mm-hmm. But um, and uh, so my sister's been vegan for I don't know 12 or 14 years or something. Mm-hmm. And um, 
and she lives a very conscientious intentional lifestyle like she lives in portland she's never owned a car she bicycles everywhere she's very vegan she's super portlandia um, yeah she's yeah, super yeah. portlandia uh-huh. <laughs> it's pretty classic um but i mean she's made very intentional choices with her life to to minimize her harm you know mm-hmm. which i which i really respect and so that was always a positive influence for sure um for me though it's it's all slightly more in moderation you know i definitely call myself vegetarian but like i was saying in antarctica i was eating meat um, yeah like when we're at the russian logistical base um we were getting served by the russian staff i mean it's like oh the options are yeah you're not pork, gonna get kale or smoothies pork soup there, yeah and yeah. i was kind of like well i guess i'm having the pork soup because lisa mm-hmm. has you know frozen vegetables in it too it's like and um and realistically you know because my goal was always to minimize my impact it was like if i eat meat from time to time when it's like the thing that there is to eat i'm like that's fine i'm still minimizing 90 percent of my impact or yeah. whatever that's that's good enough um and then yeah but that's basically my dietary you know like minimizing my harm right 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 yeah it's interesting i mean i think it's a natural extrapolation of i mean you you point to your sister as living this you know low impact no impact minimalist lifestyle but you know your your life is pretty emblematic of that as well like it's it's minimal. Well, you I just bought a house, right? But yeah, you know, yeah. you've been famously been living in this yeah. van for a long time. And but I travel so much, though, that I mean, in terms of impact, like the, you know, in terms of car- carbon emissions, like my my footprint's outrageous. Mm-hmm. You know, though I kind of deal with that in other ways. But, um, but I mean, I definitely have a big impact on the earth, and that's part of the reason that I look for things like diet, like any kind of personal choices I can make to minimize that impact. I feel are pretty important for me. Mm-hmm. But, and you've always, I mean, you, how long did you live in the van? Uh, well. I mean, 10 years, I guess. But yeah. I mean, last year I bought this house in, in Vegas, but then I still spent six months in the van because then I went to Yosemite for two right. months. And then we, my girlfriend and I road tripped around the, uh, the Northwest for two months in the summer. And then I was back in the Valley in the fall. So, I mean, yeah, I was in the van for six months. Uh-huh. I'm so bummed like, that you didn't drive the van here. Yeah, well, <laughs> I want to see it. Yeah, I came from New York though. So it's yeah, like, no, I know. You know. Um, and, you know, baked into that really is, you know, living, living light in the sense of like, you're not accumulating a bunch of possessions. Like you just want to climb. You're trying to, the, the, the idea behind it really is like strip away everything non-essential. Yeah. Focus on distractions your goals. so that you can spend the most amount of time mm-hmm. doing the thing that you love. Yeah. That's most important to you. Yeah, for sure. Right. Like what do I want to be doing and what do I need to do to do that? And then everything else is just sort of superfluous. Right. But I would imagine as your profile continues to to rise, the, there are more and more pressures on you to, you know, hey, come do this or we yeah, want certainly. you to come here. And, and it all sounds awesome, right? But all of those things are kind of yeah. related to what you love and, and perhaps they inform it or inspire other people to get mm-hmm. more involved in, and excited about this thing that you love. But ultimately it's taking you away from the thing. That yeah. You love, I mean, right? you've had to deal with all that too, huh? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, always, it's like, oh, all, like, this, all this wellness is making me unwell. You yeah, know? yeah. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like exactly. it, it's, it's that classic thing That's of funny. like, oh, well, what's more important? Like me going out on a trail run or going and getting in front of a thousand people to talk about mm-hmm. like this lifestyle. Like, yeah. You have to balance that. Right. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes it's hard, it's, it's like hard for me personally to say no. And I've had to Mm -hmm. learn how to get better Mm -hmm. at that. No, I I struggle with that stuff too. I mean, I joke with a lot of my friends that being a professional climber makes you a worse climber, you know, because the sponsors, yeah, being a professional climber, yeah, being a professional climber means that you're working. You can't be the dirt bag guy Exactly. Yeah. Being a dirt bag, all you do is climb. So you're pretty good at climbing. Right. But I mean, but obviously there's balance because being a professional, you get paid to go to cool places, you get, you know, you broaden your climbing experience Mm -hmm. and 
you know, for me, it's important that, that I make a living. I can save for the future. Like, cause I don't want to be a 75 year old dirtbag living in my car right. with like no health insurance, just like struggling, you know? Uh-huh. Um, like, you know, I'm very grateful that I'm able to save and that, you know, someday I'll have a family and it should be like a relatively comfortable lifestyle and stuff. Mm-hmm. And you know, that I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad for that, but I still just want to go climb all the time. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> why, uh, why did you get a house in Vegas? Oh, I think it's the, because everybody, the are, yeah, everybody's like, why Vegas? Yeah, Especially people from weird. overseas are like, but I what? think it's the best climbing in the country. Really? Like straight up. But, um, the climate is great for climate. It's like always good. Um, there's climate altitude. So when it's hot, you just go higher mm-hmm. and it's totally fine. Um, also the, the housing is cheap, so it's easy to get a place there. Um, there's no income tax, which is kind of, um, and the thing is, I mean, where else, you know, like where, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, where I do the, I, I don't know, Boulder, I guess, or yeah, but you know, Boulder's, where, where, where do all Boulder's those guys super live? pricey. Yeah. So you can't just like buy a casual house in Boulder mm-hmm. unless you, you're a millionaire or living near Yosemite. Um, yeah, but I don't, I don't like the Yosemite housing situation because anywhere that you can live near Yosemite is still a 40 minute drive into the Valley. And so I would still just want to stay in the Valley with my van and, and deal right. with, you know, deal with the Valley camping situation because I just don't like having to drive back and forth all the time. Yeah. There but, was that thing in Valley uprising where you had to, you have to park your yeah. van like outside the perimeter. Right? Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. I mean, th- there are a lot of different ways you can pay for the camping and in, in the pay campgrounds. There, there are different things you can do, but, um, but everybody sort of finds their own path in Yosemite and, and there are definitely ways to make it work. Mm-hmm. But the thing about living 40 minutes out is that it's not even in a city then. It's like not, not like there are restaurants or anything to do. It's like you're just in some cabin in the woods, but right. you still drive super far. Right. And so I would rather live like where I live in Vegas. I can walk across the street to a bunch of different ethnic restaurants. And it's actually I think it's like the only neighborhood in Vegas that's walkable. Uh-huh. But there's a grocery store across the street. There's a bunch of restaurants. It's everything I need. And there's are there is there a, there's a climbing community there? Yeah, there's a good climbing right. community. I have a lot of friends there. Um, you know, it's 10 minutes to mountain biking trails, and it's like 20 minutes to the climbing, uh-huh. 15 minutes to climbing. Right. Um, and the climbing gym is four minutes. It's normally one track. Like if I'm listening to music, yeah. you know, on the drive there, you have one big song, get psyched up, and then you get to the gym and climb. Uh-huh. I mean, it's pretty. It's a good situation for me. But now you're in a position where it's like, oh, now I need furniture, and now I need like oh, this is like how do you? She dealt with all that. She did. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's amazing. You're like, I'm just gonna go sleep in the van. No, so when I bought the house, actually, uh, at the time, my girlfriend was abroad, and uh, and so I did just I got a Wi-Fi router, and then I would just sit in this empty, unfurnished home to use my laptop, and then uh-huh. I realized that the service was just as good in the van on the driveway, and I was right. like, oh, screw it, I'm just staying <laughs> on the driveway. Yeah. So like, uh-huh. I didn't have, I had no possessions, nothing in the house, I just had you know my wi-fi set up and then i would just live in the van on the driveway uh-huh. and then um after a week or two or whatever when she came back then uh we acquired a bed and you know piece by piece we right 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 and stuff. wow you got yeah. a house now yeah. um let's talk about the the foundation a little bit i mean this i think it's a natural segue because you know we're talking about minimalism low impact mm-hmm. you know uh you know your diet well, so I, the things, same so. the same year that i went vegetarian i started mm, the foundation right it was basically a year where i was like i need to start trying to do something positive for the world and so i thought that the three things i was going to st- do that year were start this foundation like start donating money to charity and uh start offsetting my travel like doing carbon offsets and then and then go vegetarian and um and then the carbon offsets i wound up sort of ignoring and rolling that into my foundation because mm-hmm. as i looked into it more i realized that you're basically financing projects that i'd rather just finance myself through the foundation just do it more directly rather than going through a third-party carbon mm-hmm. offset mm-hmm. um <clears throat> and so yeah so basically that year i went vegetarian and i started the foundation which um at the beginning was just me donating money um in a public way to environmental nonprofits. Uh-huh. um 
and then actually just this year we're trying to sort of rebrand it as like a real thing that i'm more comfortable being public about and the idea but, behind it is environmental preservation yeah so or, i think that i think the mission statement now is supporting solar energy for a more equitable world mm -hmm. that's good so who came that, up with that several of us and yeah. it took quite a bit of it took more effort than it probably should have, uh, but but the solar the solar aspect of it or the solar focus of it is is kind of derived from this carbon offset idea, right? Like well, I'm partially. Well, actually, no, no. Really, it comes from me looking for projects. I mean, so when it started, I was just like, "What do I want to donate money mm -hmm. to that will make the world a better place?" And so I started looking for things that were sort of win win. Because basically, there's no point in supporting environmental projects that don't also improve human standard of living. Because if people are living in poverty they do not care about environmental right. protection. And so basically I was looking for environmental projects that also help people improve in poverty or improve yeah, people's yeah, yeah. livelihoods. Uh -huh. And so, and solar just fits that so perfectly. I mean, solar projects or energy access type projects are such an easy way to produce clean energy, which is a clear environmental gain, but also help people materially. And so I started supporting basically one group in uh, domestically, which was grid alternatives, mm -hmm. and then one group in Africa, which is solar aid, um, doing off-grid. Basically, it's like grid-tied solar systems versus off-grid solar systems. And um, st started supporting both of those just because they seemed like such obvious winners. You know, mm -hmm. I was like, this is making the world better. And then over the last five years, I guess, that I've been supporting them, you know, we've branched out into some other projects and tried some one-off things our own and, and, you know, worked in the space more. But that solar has always been the thread through it and so now we've sort of just made that our actual mission statement right that's cool yeah. i like that i don't that's know i mean it's, it's all a work in progress but um but i think this year we're actually starting to be more like i've never solicited donations i've never actually asked people to donate to the foundation i've always just put it out there as like this is what i'm doing and this is you know my effort to try to do yeah. something positive in the world but i think that this year we'll actually start trying to solicit donations to basically support bigger projects and do well, of more course you it. should so when you say we you, you have a team of people yeah so from the beginning i've had this friend of mine mari birdwell who's the executive director but um but basically he's a climber who's an attorney in boulder who's you know a friend and then um and then sort of starting this last year there are two other women involved that are both um they've brought a lot of energy to it they're a lot more go-getter uh -huh. and they're kind of making this all happen more because you know i've always just been content donating a big chunk of my my income every year and just being like okay you know i've i've done something positive that's great i'm supporting these projects but i've never felt super comfortable pushing it really hard or asking people for money or, or soliciting big you know grants from uh from the companies i work with or anything and so um i think they're sort of helping to to bring the vision together and, yeah. and make it more public. You know? Well, you know, just even if you have the greatest team ever, you're still the face of it. Like you, you're going to have to get to a place where you're comfortable. Yeah, like and just I being think, like, look, man, this is a good thing. Like, you know, break out the wallet. Yeah, when you I know? think that's kind of, I think I'm getting there. Uh -huh. And honestly, I think El Cap is actually tied into that a lot because um, I'm a lot more comfortable being a professional climber, having done something that I'm actually very proud of. Yeah, that I feel like I worked very hard for, and it was that was a legitimately big challenge, and. Um, and I definitely have a bigger platform and certainly with a movie coming out this year, it's going to be um, probably a whole different yeah, level. Of course. And so um, it's just kind of good timing for me personally and professionally to, to be more public about the foundation. And, mm -hmm. and honestly, I mean, the, I mean, the world needs it, you know, like, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean, you've traveled to places, you know, most people will never go. Right. Like, so you have a sense of, uh, 
you know, the environment and, and kind of have a, have a perspective on, you know, a global awareness perspective that a lot of people have, you know, because we mm-hmm. just don't travel like you do. Mm-hmm. I mean, what is you, you know, what do you learn when you go to these actually, far reaches of the planet? I've actually never really thought about this, but it's interesting that through climbing, I've kind of seen the full spectrum, both environmentally and, and through human society, because I've been to some of the poorest places on earth where you see human populations living in, in, rugged conditions which you know this is like chad or places in in you know basically sub-saharan africa but like right on the edge of the desert like really really grim living conditions um or very challenging conditions where you i mean it's just shocking to see people living you know you're like wow really right um but then on the other end i've also been to places like going back to patagonia multiple years where each year you go you see the glaciers receded a couple hundred meters Mm -hmm. to the point where um just over the three years that I've been to Patagonia, uh, the approach into one of the valleys has changed significantly. Like you now hike on the opposite side of the valley because the glaciers move so much that it makes more sense to come right. in from the other side now. And um, just over the course of your short yeah, career, yeah, just over right. the course of me going to Patagonia for four or five years or whatever, mm-hmm. which is crazy because. Um, yeah. And then you come back to the U.S. and people are like, "No, you know, climate change isn't a thing," and you're kind of like. I mean, you can go to the mountains and you can right. see the glaciers moving backward. And that and that's just in my tiny, tiny little lifespan, which should be insignificant in the grand scheme of, of the earth. And so you're like, if if humans can physically see change with their own eyes, I mean, that's that's a disaster. Right. You know, that's that's uh, crazy. It's beyond a disaster. It's it's unbelievable. Yeah. And it's so disheartening to see, um, you know, the situation that we find ourselves in where there isn't, uh, you know, very much political will to confront it. Yeah. You know? I think right now it's and even less, on the solar than, thing too, right? Like I know the happened. solar tariff thing right. is, is pretty crazy. Though on, I don't I mean, know who's if that's not in favor even, of solar. Like it's insane. I know, I know. Well, it's interesting because you know the Trump administration is trying to protect solar manufacturing in the U.S. versus, but it's like solar installation is such a bigger driver of jobs and better for the economy and just way more important. But I mean, whatever. The thing with that stuff, though, I, I kind of think you know I'm no expert in the solar industry, but. Um, I think that's more like a little speed bump that's like, that's annoying and that's stupid and it's short-sighted, mm-hmm. but it's not going to change the overall trajectory, which is that every every structure in America will have solar on it within, you know, yeah. 15 years or something. Yeah. And like, it's all happening no matter what. I, and that's actually kind of what bothers me is that to me, it seems clear that that's an inevitable trend that's happening. Like renewable energy is ju- it's just cheaper. You know, everybody will go 100% renewable within the next 50 years because that's just the way that's the way it is. But it's like too bad we can't just do it in 15 years instead of 50, right? You know, and save ourselves a lot of freaking climate disaster down the road. Yeah, I mean, it's like so frustrating that people can't just it could do it be a little faster so quickly. I mean, we, if if there was a real will for right. it, for sure. I mean, there are certain areas in China where they're just crushing it in that regard. Mm-hmm. So it's weird that they're like leading the charge. Well, I mean, I, I think like, in some ways it's great because I mean there are far more people in China too, and so that's true. and I mean somebody needs to lead, and it's like if the U.S. wants to abdicate that that right. opportunity, you know, just like give up the. I mean, it's disappointing that the U.S. isn't leading, but I'm like, as long as somebody does, that's great because mm-hmm. humanity needs a leader, and so. You know, yeah, you know. I mean it. It uh, we definitely do, and it's a it's a race against time. You know, mm-hmm. the, the the idea that you could see that change in a blink of an eye, like I know it's crazy. It's, I mean, there's one valley in, in Patagonia. It's like, yeah. I mean, you know, this is anecdotal. It's not it's not real science, but still, you're like. Though I mean, it, I mean, obviously it is real science. You can go into the Sierra and you can see that the glacier. I mean, have you, have you ever seen any of the glaciers in the Sierra? There, there are a couple no. uh, in the Palisades, like some of the fourteen thousand foot peaks in the Sierra Nevada in California, um, technically have glaciers. But um, 
it's so sad you go up now and you're like oh that tiny little snow field that's the palisade glacier you're like huh like that's not you know yeah that's not what people think of when they think of a glacier mm-hmm. it looks like a dirty snow patch you yeah. know and in a couple of years it'll probably be gone it'll just become seasonal yeah. snow patches but, well, I think, I mean, you're you're in a unique position to be, you know, a sort of spokesperson for this with all the things that you've accomplished and, you know, your ability to uh, get up in front of people and uh, as somebody that, you know, people respect and admire, um, you know, to to take that, to, you know, shoulder that responsibility and take that on. I, you know, I mean, I, I try that. to do that as, as much as I can. And, and I, you know, um, that's sort of why I like social media and having a platform is because I'm able to talk about issues that I think are really important. Yeah. But um, but you do get such backlash and such criticism and so much. You, you got know, all this shit for going to the women's the march. Women's what march. Was the I deal know. with that? I know. Well, it's because there were signs in those pictures. Is like the last sign in the image in the series of images said uh uh I called Trump a, a can I, can I curse? You can yeah you can say I'd, whatever you want. I'd call Trump a cunt, but he lacks the warmth and depth. Uh-huh. It was like, which, you know, right. like it's pretty funny, but, uh, <laughs> and that was like an old woman that but, had that sign. I think, I don't know. My girlfriend took all the pictures yeah. and stuff. Um, and then I just sort of took some of the ones that I thought were funny and put them into a slideshow. But I mean, it gets like a lot of criticism from people. And I'm like, yeah, I understand that that sign is, is crude. It's vulgar and it's not respectful to the presidency, but I'm like, you know, that is free speech. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I wouldn't necessarily, like, I wouldn't, I would never hold that sign. Like I, that's not the message that I want to necessarily but at the same time, it's the women's march. I mean, come on. I mean, basically, it was a bunch of women, you know, trying to to advocate for for equal rights, basically, and and rights for you know minority groups, and they're trying to register people to vote. And I'm like, all of those things should be fundamental should for be a functioning cel- democracy. We should, yeah, like we everybody, celebrate this. I know it's like weird that, that stuff becomes so partisan because, really, you know, if everybody votes, democracy is functioning at its best. You know, I mean, the whole point of democracy is for everybody to express their opinions. And so like, but Alex, you're a climber, stay in your lane. Just, no, I, I, want, I just want pictures of you on the rocks. I know that stuff, you know? that stuff is, well, I, I appreciate that point of view. And I mean, I, you know, I try to post a lot of climate pictures, but like, what's the point in, in do it? What's the point in having a platform if not talking about the things that matter? Yeah. Particularly when they, I mean, it's the freaking rest day in Vegas. I went to do a cool, cool cultural event with my right. girlfriend. It's like, that's awesome. I know. Shame on you. you. Know? I know. Yeah, I mean, if I went to like a cool natural history museum and posted something about the museum, it's or like that should be just yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, I'd be like, oh, I went to this cool thing. You know, I want to share that. But um, but, but I think I, it just speaks to, uh, you know, the heightened emotional state that we're in and the the extent of the polarization. You know, it's yeah. It's well, a, it's I, so a, I generally try time. to I try to craft my my messages whenever I get political or you know talk about diet or talk about any of the stuff that I care about environmental issues or anything. I generally try to be relatively moderate and respectful about it because the thing is if people just unfollow you or turn you off then it's like you're only preaching to the choir and yeah. and like i don't need to talk to the choir i need to talk yeah. to the people that disagree i definitely you agree know? with that and so that i mean i typically try to make things pretty mellow because i want people to listen to it mm-hmm. you know yeah and you, but, you i mean on the diet tip like i've heard you speak about it from time to time but you don't put it out in front you know you're mm-hmm. pretty low-key about the whole thing well that's also because i, I mean i do eat meat sometimes yeah so, like, i don't want to preach about you know like being vegan is the way i mean i do agree that if everybody ate a vegan diet the world would be a better place straight up but you know sometimes i eat pizza and i'm like oh it is right it is you know like dairy's not even that good for me like I'm, i think i'm lactose intolerant but from time to time you're like it's pretty are. tasty you mm-hmm. know it's like uh, you know it's okay and do you get grief for that um, you talking about diet stuff uh yeah i mean yeah, yeah kind of um certainly if i post some like pro-vegetarian thing people are like oh stay out of you know 
Right. I don't know. So actually, I feel like. Um, so how do you like mentally, you know, manage like the 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 haters? Oh, I'm at a certain point you're just like f them. Whatever. Like I don't. Yeah, I don't care. Mm-hmm. What was interesting, so the Women's March was the biggest backlash I've ever had from anything on social media. Yeah, I think like lost, Outside like, Magazine even like wrote an article oh, yeah, about yeah. it, you know? Yeah, that stuff seems kind of silly. But but I was actually kind of glad that it got picked up in various places because the point of me posting about it is, was to give it a wider wider reach. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I'm glad for more people to see it, more people to think about it, more people to think about those issues. I'm like, that's, I mean, that's the point in having a rally to have right. people talk about it. Right. But anyway, though... Um, I think like 3,000 people unfollowed me after the Women's March, which, you know, you're like, oh, wow, that's a lot of people unfollowing. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, that's like half a percent or less than half a percent. I'm like, that just does not matter. You know, yeah. it's like, it's just, it just, life it's just goes on. It's weird to me. Like, okay, you went to a Women's March oh, well, a lot of women's people, rights. Like, no, I'm, a lot of people, I'm now, I want no part of you anymore. A lot of people know? saw it as me being uh, pro-abortion. So, I mean, the people that think that I'm advocating the murder of babies, I'm like, yeah, okay, I can see how that's really offensive to people. Like, I, I respect that. But, um... But me saying that I think that women should be able to choose their own reproductive option, you know, like be, be in control of their own bodies or whatever, mm-hmm. is a lot different than saying I think people should murder babies. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it's just too bad that, that people conflate those online. Right. But whatever. This is the, you know, this is the social media world in which, yeah, in which yeah. we live, you know. I know it's so funny that, you know, I post a picture of a sign that says that, that women should be in charge of their own bodies. And people are like, you want to murder babies? And you're like, no, I mean, leap. it's like if I personally was a woman that got pregnant, like, I mean, it would be a big decision. Like, I don't know if I personally would want to abort a baby because, you know, I like in the same way that I don't eat meat and I don't necessarily want to kill other creatures. I'm like, I don't know if I would kill, you know, like, I don't know if I would feel comfortable killing something. At the same time, I'm like, I'm not going to tell other people not to. I'm like, geez, I mean, it's their lives, you know, like they need to, I don't know. Right. Just like, yeah, but it's just, it's, it's pretty heavy, you know, people are yeah. like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. advocating murder. And you're yeah. like, I don't think so. Like, it's a pretty weird interpretation. I thought it was funny but, that then the, then the next day you posted a climbing picture and you're yeah, like. Yeah, and I was like, F all you mother effers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. Here I, you I go was, with your yeah. climbing picture. Yeah. You know? No, I was very proud of that. Uh-huh. But I kind of love stirring the pot like that a little bit. Uh-huh. I mean, that's the whole, I mean, that's how civil society should work. You know, people should exchange ideas yeah. and talk about things and, you know, broaden their opinions and stuff. Well, the thing but, is, like, if you if you're able to develop a platform and you have an audience of people with that comes a certain responsibility to speak your truth. And if that doesn't land, you know, well with certain people, like, so be it. Yeah. You know, no, totally because agree. otherwise, what's the point? Yeah. Yeah. You know? No, exactly. Otherwise, you're basically being held hostage by the mob. You right. Know? You're just like, we just oh, want I'm, you the way we want. you. Yeah. I'm you like, know? no, screw that. I'm, I'm going to be me. I'm going to yeah, do my yeah, thing. Yeah. But, All right. Well, know. I want to talk a little bit about. Um, like the practical aspects of like how you live this life. Like I, I assume like I'm trying to understand like how this all works. Like you have North Face as a sponsor. They pay you. You do commercials. You do these all, all these sorts of things. You get paid in all these various ways. And that all kind of comes together to make it work. Is that that's how basically it functions? It. Yeah, that's pretty yeah. much it. Um, I mean, I you have, have like a manager. Yeah, I have an agent slash manager that, uh-huh. that deals. And so um, all the little things that you're talking about, like commercials or uh, corporate speaking gigs or, or even my sponsorship money, that all kind of goes through the agent. Yeah. And so then I'm just getting, you know, direct deposits from my right, agent. Basically. Right, right, right. So he says, like, here's a good one or whatever yeah. filters out, yeah. like whatever stuff. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's kind of an interesting thing on the sponsor level. Um, I mean, North Face, I mean, that's an amazing company. Like, I, I love mm-hmm. how they support all these different interesting athletes. And, and that, um, like, the Athlete Summit that mm-hmm. they do, like, seems really cool. Yeah, the, I mean, that's know? basically 
too, just the team meeting. But it's yeah. pretty amazing because you get to hang out with all these people that are so great in different fields, and mm-hmm. it's always oh, pretty inspiring. Yeah, it's cool. But, I had a bunch of those. Yeah. Do you know Dean Carnazes? Yeah, part of that. Yeah. Um, uh, who else? Do you know Brogan Graham? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. He's yeah, very big. I love that guy. He's yeah, he's been on, on the podcast. Uh, yeah. Timmy Olson. Yeah, Olson yeah, Runner. Yeah. yeah, it's cool. Um, but on the other hand, you have like these other sponsors who are sort of creeping away from this high risk world. Like, you know, it's relevant to the social media thing because we're in this kind of, you know, environment in which, you know, it's got to be crazier and it's got to be wilder and X games and, you know, wingsuit people and all these the Olympics doing insane week. stunts, you know, and it's like, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? To the point where it was Cliff Bar, right? That like yeah, pulled Bar. back and said, we can't be part of this anymore. It's getting mm-hmm. too hectic for us. Yeah, it was, that was, I think, in 2014, but that's the only sponsor that has ever dropped me. Uh-huh. Um, and it was so, part of that like purge that they did for that yeah, reason. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was post Valley Uprising being released, mm. um, and they dropped uh, Dean Potter and Cedar Wright and Timmy O'Neill and, and uh, Steph Davis. So like basically the five of us that sort of represented the extreme danger right. climbing or whatever. But um, but then the next year Dean did die in an accident, yeah. and so you know obviously they're at least somewhat correct about risk taking. I mean, we are doing things that are dangerous. And yeah, they're saying we're paying these people, and then they feel some pressure. You know, maybe not a not like you know, overt pressure, but internally to like push the envelope, mm-hmm. push the envelope. So, and then so, they have that on their hands if something happens. Yeah. I, I don't know this for sure, but, um, but the cliff thing, I think part of that was, I think Gary, the, the owner of cliff is personally, uh, really opposed to free soloing. And so I think it wasn't necessarily the brand is totally opposed, but, but Gary was like, I'm not into this. This is a bad deal mm-hmm. or, or something, you know, like I kind of think there was some kind of backstory. I don't, I don't know it. Yeah. Um, and I'm not really that concerned about it. Cause I mean, it's totally fair for them to not, you know, yeah. I mean, I really appreciated their support. And then, and then once they fired me, they were actually really cool about it too. They still sent me free product and they paid out my contract and it was all pretty legit. You know, I was like, that's cool. I still get free product and it's all good. So, um, I mean, I have no hard feelings at all. But um, yeah, I mean, every brand sort of makes makes their own decision, you know. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Though, I mean, interestingly, so I was I sort of mentioned that I came from the Beyond Meat office this morning. Right. Oh yeah, that's and right. So I mean, this is kind of a good little example of how how my whole lifestyle works. Is like, so they sort of reached out about maybe I don't know. They've talked to my agent manager a bit um, about maybe some kind of sponsorship or partnership or something. Like I don't know exactly. Right. But um. But since I'm in LA, it made sense to go meet them and see the whole crew and, and eat the eat Ethan the food. Was there. You know, yeah, Ethan it was awesome. Was there. Yeah, yeah, and so um, I got a full you know buffet of all their products. Uh-huh. They were super delicious. I was really into it. Had the you had seemed, Beyond Meat before? Not really. They'd sent some to my address, but I think I was on expedition. My girlfriend ate it, and I don't know. I just never, never really tried it. Um, and so that's kind of an example of you know I might wind up with some kind of. Aligning your them. yeah, aligning yeah. your sponsors with things that you're you're interested in. Yeah, so exactly. Like a consistency, and that there. is like very much something that I'm interested in because I really do yeah. think that's the future. I mean, I kind of think that's the only way the humans will be able to live well on Earth is if we, you know, mm-hmm. move away from animal agriculture stuff. Well, and it's just cool but, to like align your professional career with your values in yeah, that way. And I, sure. I would imagine you're somebody who's in a position where you you have the ability to pick and choose and say, you know, what this this, this I don't this message isn't I'm not down with it. You know, yeah. I want to be with companies that are like on the same page that I'm on. Like if a soda company comes wanting to right. do a commercial, you're just like, no, like I'm yeah. not going to tell people they should drink more soda. Like, I don't even think they should be buying more cans, you know, let alone those, the disgusting sugar inside them. Right. It's like, yeah. Um, 
or, or like a tobacco company. Well, no, so uh, no freaking, do you know Hans Florian? He's a, no, he was uh, like a big speed climber kind of previous generation, uh -huh. but the two of us held the speed record on the nose together um, right up until last year it got broken a couple months ago. But um, so Hans was like Mr. L cap speed record for, for many, many years. And, uh, but he's also a bit older than me and has been through the whole pro climbing thing a lot mm -hmm. longer. Every time we would hike down from the top of L cap together, we would sort of debrief about what we did performance wise on the nose and sort of talk about what we should do better. And then just sort of talk, you know, climbing and life in general. And uh, he was talking about having gone to Asia to do cigarette commercials, like in the nineties oh or something. And he was like, oh, you know, in Asia it's not as bad. I was like, you did cigarette right. commercials in Asia? But I mean, <laughs> but it was also, it was a different time. And he yeah, was it's like, like, you oh, gotta I'm make a living. Paid. Yeah, exactly. You know? He was like, oh, I'm making a living. And uh -huh. he has he has a family and everything. And he's like raising kids. Yeah. And, um, you know, but I was like, Hans, you did a cigarette commercial? That's freaking disgusting. That's so crazy. It's like, well, but, the, you know, the movie 20 stars years ago. go do that stuff in Japan. Yeah, no to one make sure nobody ever sees it, for sure. Well, I've done some stuff like that where, yeah, you do some campaign. Like, uh, like I did a whiskey commercial, uh -huh. um, or it was more like a brand piece. You don't even piece, drink, but, right? Yeah, I know, and they didn't even care. <laughs> it was awesome. It was a, it was a doer's ad, which actually turned out being awesome. It's like a really great piece. It mm -hmm. lived online for three years or something. It was good money. It was like really good professionally. But um, yeah, it was just you know some lifestyle branding thing. They like didn't care that I th like. There's no mention of liquor in the ad. There's mm -hmm. no. It was all about lifestyle, like you know choosing your path or whatever. Mm -hmm. But um. Yeah, I was like, well, only people people are only seeing it in Europe, so like at least it's not too embarrassing. Yeah, I mean, I I don't have judgment on athletes that make decisions like that. It's like they just want to do their sport, man, and it's well, hard. Well, I, ju I judge you know? a little bit. I mean, some of those things, I'm like, oh, cigarettes, like that's well, that's up. that's sort of a page beyond, I think. Um, yeah, though, I mean, people could certainly criticize alcohol in the same way. Yeah, but um, but I was like, oh, it's like high end scotch or whatever like that's not contributing to people drinking more it's sort of like they're vying for market yeah, share man. between well, well, maybe Alex it likes is his doers so yeah. <laughs> well you know i don't know like i i would think the soda actually would be worse than oh, than like no, a scotch there's, commercial there's no question about that but what's cool is but, that you know with the as the millennials come of age we're seeing this crop of like companies that are premised on transparency and sustainable you know, totally. triple bottom line values and all of that and so the options i think become you know better for someone like mm -hmm. yourself to align with you know like-minded souls mm -hmm. so that you can keep doing what you're doing and you can feel good about you know the companies that are supporting yeah you. like going into the beyond meat office today was mm -hmm. a perfect example of like the posters the the quote you know the things on the wall everything i was like this feel you know like it could all be up yeah. in my house it's like this is awesome it's totally in line with and my they're, values, and they're going huge you know they're having I a mean, massive impact i mean i hope yeah. so mm -hmm. yeah it's cool to or even the idea of working with a company like that that you want to succeed like i would love for them to take over the world just because it would make the world a better place you know like yeah if you get rid of freaking billions of cows like that's good for everybody yeah there's no question about that yeah well cool man we only have a couple more minutes here but before we uh before we close it down you know i'm interested in 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 how you choose your adventures like what is the selection process is it just like a instinctual like that sounds cool i'll do that or do you put a lot of thought and intention into like okay what's my next move because you know, there's got to be some pressure like oh well you did al cap so now you know what's the next crazy thing you're going to do or is that not part of the calculus um no it's, it's some combination of the two i mean it's it's largely what's inspiring you know i mean el cap has always been the most beautiful inspiring mm -hmm. like that is such a clear objective but then i am pretty meticulous about having journals and to-do lists and things and so 
you know, I make a list of, of potential goals and then obviously it makes sense to organize them in a way that maximizes fitness and things. You know, like if you're trying to do something that's very short and hard, you do that before doing something that's like long and easier, mm-hmm. you know, to build things so that physiologically you're actually capable of doing mm-hmm. the things that you want to do. Um, and then some of it has to do with weather and fitness and timing, you know, like where will you be at certain times of the year and how does that play into work? And so, I mean, I'm kind of constantly evaluating different potential goals. And so something that I might really want to do just like doesn't make sense to do this year because I won't have the opportunity because I don't right. have the time required or I won't be in. Like I've always wanted to climb in, in, in Trango it is like a, this valley in Pakistan. It's like big walls at high altitude. It's really beautiful. And I'm, I will definitely go there sometime in my life. But um, but not this year. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it just doesn't make sense with the schedule and with stuff going on and like real life. So what is the next so, thing? Um, don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, basically, I've been trying to get stronger. Like I've been I've been training systematically in a gym. Yeah, um, you look big, man. Do I? I mean, I you're like, like you you, like, you definitely look. You, when you walked in the door, I was like, oh, he's he's like a little more like jacked up than I was expecting. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I've been uh, I've been lifting some weights yeah. actually, <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> is for that real. like a new thing? Yeah, it's a very new thing. Yeah. Um, well, I came home from Antarctica, the heaviest I've ever been, and, and kind of fat man style a little bit. It was it was a little because the month before the trip. I mean, I kind of said I was slightly depressed about the trip. I was like, I don't know. I, I wasn't, I wasn't excited about going. I knew it was a great opportunity and I, you know, knew it'd be cool, but I was like, oh man, it's going to be cold. I'm not going to be climbing. It wasn't, you know, but so anyway, the month before I went, I wasn't training that much and I was eating a lot because I was trying to gain some weight before Antarctica because it seemed appropriate. And then while I was there, I ate a lot because yeah. you're in Antarctica and, and part of it was just, uh, uh, what do you call it? Like, uh, uh, like when you're comfort eating you right. know i was just because you have a really somewhat traumatic day of climbing and you come home and back to camp and yeah, you're just like, like i'm gonna chill. eat this whole thing right. of nutella you know because i just want to eat something to feel better because it was like it was pretty raw there i mean i thought it was pretty full-on but um so i came home and i was like oh like i'm i'm actually like kind of yeah. heavy and kind of weak <laughs> and just like uh-huh. you know it's the first time i've ever been it was the heaviest i've ever been a couple pounds overweight mm-hmm. i mean i'm talking a few pounds here and there not like 10 but um Anyway, so now I've tried to start the systematic training type of stuff, and I'm, I'm, I'm do you seeing work with a trainer on that, or how do you get your information, like um, the protocol? So, I mean, I guess you could say I do. Um, so, a good friend of mine, this guy Jonathan Segrist, who's one of the best sport climbers in the country, like really under the radar, like no non climber knows knows who he is, but he's one of the best sport climbers in the world. But um, he uh, he's a good friend of mine. He's also living in Vegas, and um, so I'm paying him a bit as my trainer this season, and. The thing is, I know how he's been training the last couple of years and it's had really great success for him. And so I'm like, all right, I'm doing this and I'm committed to it. But it's actually been quite helpful having him kind of guide me through the process because um, a lot of it is like form and how I do the exercises and like making sure that I maintain good shoulder health by like how I hold my arms to mm. do certain things, things like that. But what is it, but, like um, functional strength stuff or it's actually lifting weights in a, in a gym or? No, the lifting the weights is just for opposition type training to make, sure, you know, to balance out. Basically, I'm hanging off small edges with a bunch of weight on. I see. Um, so I don't know what you call that, but yeah, it makes I don't know. But you're used to doing stronger. that, right? But just not with extra weight. Not with extra you? weight. I the see. extra weight has made it uh, quite a bit different for me. Uh-huh. But so I'm almost done with my first cycle, and the the each each cycle is like a month roughly. Yeah. And um, the last two days, I was climbing in the gym in New York. I was like slightly off my program because I was traveling. But um, it was the first two days where I was like, oh my goodness, this is working and it's pretty exciting. I was mm-hmm. like, I felt really strong in the gym and it was like, wow. Like, so yeah, cool. so what does that translate but, into? Does that like change? Okay, well, now that I feel like this, like maybe I'll go do this climb. It'll take a lot more. Um, it'll take, like right now I'm sort of feeling as strong as I ever feel. I'm gonna do at least one more training cycle for the month of February. 
And hopefully that'll break into new ground where I'm like, oh my yeah. goodness, I've never been so strong. And then I'll sort of evaluate. Right. But I have a couple goals in Yosemite this season that lend themselves to being strong. Mm. So I'm like, that's helpful. And then yes, yeah, so like we'll a cyclist though, you got to be careful about power to weight, right? Like you can't get too big. Yeah. Well, I've actually been losing a little weight as like the thing is holding weights while you hang. I mean, my forearms are never going to get that big. Yeah. A cyclist has to worry about it because it's their butt and their thighs and it's like big muscles. But a climber, I mean, your forearms are never going to be that big. Because, mm. I mean, mostly I'm training my hands. Right. But if you start getting, you know, big shoulders and lats and, you know, no, suddenly the, you're packing on all this muscle, you got yeah, to haul that up the mountain, right? Yeah. Well, so also I'm doing things um, in like the six to eight rep range. So it's not like developing big muscles. You know, yeah. it's not like max, like two reps where you're right, just right, lifting right. some huge weights. Like you're doing uh -huh. it six or eight times. So um, you're not really developing big muscles. You're developing strong muscles. Yeah. I don't that's know. That's cool. It, I, I don't know. It seems to be working pretty well. Nice, but man. We'll see. I need a few more months to... to right. And, no, and just no, no decision yet about what the next thing is. Well, it's just... I just... I don't really have the bandwidth for a next big thing because there's a movie coming out in, mm -hmm. the, in the fall. I'll be doing all kinds of crazy media around it. I'll be supporting the book coming out. Um, and in some ways, I'm like... When does the book come out? Probably, probably with the movie. Mm. I think everything's kind of coming. Is there together. a release date for the movie yet? Um, September, October. I think it'll be in festivals in September, yeah. and then in theaters in October. Right. But um, that's the theory. But um, it's funny. I, th I think it's called Free Solo, which is cool. It was going to be called Solo, which is even cooler. But they're mm. freaking coming out with a Star Wars movie at the same time. That's called Solo. Oh, that's right. And so then everyone's like, "Oh no!" And had it's to a change bummer, the name. Solo is a better yeah, name. Yeah, Solo is a better name, but it's like it's hard to compete with Han Solo. You know. yeah, yeah i like, mean oh, what are the chances of that that's crazy. i know it's, i know it's unfortunate you know. but free solo is not a terrible name uh -huh. you know it's 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 close but. so when you're not when you're not like actively you know pursuing your prep for a particular expedition or, or adventure like what's a day what's a day in the life just going climbing just yeah i mean yeah going climbing keep and it, keep it typing working i have a bunch of different writing things going on you know just like little i don't know some italian book wants a little essay about something and right you know just just like life yeah but um uh, yeah and then r normally i do a lot more adventure like cardi you know going for mountain bike rides or trail runs or like fun things yeah um or like big scrambles like soloing up up easy routes but um but right now because i'm trying to do the systematic training i've really cut back on that kind of stuff so that i recover more mm. so that i can train harder mm -hmm. and um and i'm seeing good results of that but um at some point i'm sure i'll start you know going mountain yeah. biking more again or something but, where do you uh where do you see yourself in 10 years or do you even think about that like do you do you forecast yourself or think about I, I, I think about it i mean in 10 years i wouldn't be surprised to have a family or something have some kids or a kid i don't know <laughs> we'll see um but um but hopefully i'm doing the exact same stuff i mean yeah. hopefully i'm climbing and trying to get better at climbing you know doing at least a cool expedition every year or something yeah. and i don't know we'll see what do you learn from from hanging out with guys like conrad from, you know, I think that's what I've learned generation. from hanging out with Conrad is I think that Conrad is actually a really good vision of what I would like my life to be in 10 or 15 He's years. He's an amazing person. I mean, yeah, he, he has such a good balance because he has a really good, healthy family life. Mm -hmm. He's got a nice situation in Montana where he lives, but then he still goes on big adventures. But he's been working with the North Face for 30 years yeah. and um, and he's still very passionate about that and he really contributes to the brand and it's, I don't know, I mean, his whole lifestyle, I think, is pretty well balanced mm -hmm. and, and he's happy with it, you know, mm -hmm. and that's the important thing. I mean, but, do you have mentors like him that you like run stuff by or how does it, how does that work or do you just um, rely on your instincts? 
I mean, yeah. I mean, I just spent six weeks in a tent with Conrad. Right. So, so uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I guess I ran stuff by yeah. him a bit. Um, but no, Conrad and Jimmy have both always been very generous with their, with their time and thoughts. Um, and it's definitely helpful that if I ever have some kind of weird opportunity, I can just call people like them and ask. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't say any of them are specifically, you know, a mentor. But I mean, uh, or like I was just saying with Jonathan Seeger says my trainer. I wouldn't necessarily call him a trainer, but I mean, it's very helpful to have a friend who's one of the best of the world in something yeah. who you can just, who will just come by the house and help you with it. Yeah. You know? Or with someone like but, Conrad, just to, you, 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 he, you could just look to his example yeah. as inspiration yeah, for, for sure. how you want to model your life. Yeah, I mean, there's several climbers like him. Actually, Tommy Caldwell is a really good example mm-hmm. of somebody that I would be happy to model my life around his. Um, and part of buying a house in Vegas last year was actually looking at people like Tommy and seeing that part of the reason that he's financially secure and able to climb full time and enjoy his life with his family is because he's been smart about, you know, paying off a property and having a rental and things mm-hmm. like that, like mm-hmm. just so that he doesn't have to worry about, you know, becoming an unemployed climber. Yeah, yeah. But. No. Yeah, but I don't. I mean, I don't worry about that with you. I don't know. I mean, you know, you're 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 not going to go out and like buy a bunch of Porsches and stuff. Like, can you I don't imagine? see you. You know what I mean? Like, I tow them all behind my van. <laughs> yeah, I've got the Porsche behind uh-huh. my van. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'll never be frivolous like that. But uh-huh. but I mean, that's a you know, all my sponsors could drop me. I could have one big health problem or something. You know, I could get mm-hmm. cancer or something. Like, um, I don't know. I mean, you never know what life is going to yeah. give you. Well, as we close it down, maybe <laughs> I think it would be good to um, like just leave like, people with what's that? Nothing like closing on cancer. So. <laughs> yeah. like Listen, man, I think that like speaks that. to your yeah. your your appreciation for the reality of death. You know, it's like you live in the moment in certain respects, and and understanding that you know all we have is today, and how are we going to make the most of of what we mm-hmm. have in this moment, right? And your climbing is sort of an expression of that. It really, it punctuates the the preciousness of life by living on that edge in a certain way. I mean, when you say it, it sounds very eloquent, but I would never be able to say it that know. way. I don't know. I'd be like, I don't know. I just love going climbing. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, that sounds beautiful. I'm like, I wish I did that. Yeah. I'm like, you know. Well, for somebody who's listening who, who you know, perhaps has a, an instinct to go on an adventure, but feels feels trapped or feels like disempowered you know what kind of message do you want to convey to that person oh that's interesting so i mean this isn't quite a clean wrap-up but um but so interestingly um i'm supposed to give a ted talk this year Mm. um at like the conference in in april in vancouver like the big ted wow yeah which i'm like oh fantastic yeah well big opportunity yeah exactly (laughs) exactly you're like way scarier than like climbing out like oh so i've sort of written an outline for it and i've like worked through some ideas and some Uh themes and um which is all due basically tomorrow the end of the month which is tomorrow um and so i'm like oh no but um i think that what I've been kind of struggling with or working on is to make the climbing more applicable to, to the layperson, to, to any average like person. What are the lessons? Yeah. And I think that one of the lessons is, or I don't know, one of the ideas is, is like, what is the thing that is worth putting the work in for you? Or what is the thing that's most important to you? Like in my case, I'm talking about El Cap and my preparation for free soloing El Cap. And, and to me, El Cap was the thing that was worth the work. But basically, like, what is the thing that's worth it to you? And then what is the work that you need to put into that? Mm-hmm. You know, and, uh, I'm still fleshing out the ideas, but with El Cap, you know, to me, the big moments were sort of identifying that this is something that is important enough to my life that I'm willing to do the work. And then the moment where I'd realized that I had done all the work that I needed to do, which is sort of a different way of looking at, I'm now ready to do this. You know, instead of looking at, it's like, I'm ready to climb El Cap. It's actually more of, 
I have done the work that I needed mm-hmm. and therefore, you know, being able to do it like naturally follows. Mm-hmm. But, um, I don't know. So, I mean, I think that people should just think about what is the thing that they want to do. And then, you know, what, are, what are the steps to do that? Like, what is the work involved? And like, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's very much a work in progress. Yeah, no, I like that <laughs> but, though. I mean, you know, baked into that is, 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 uh, an appreciation for the hard work and the level to which, you know, you completely devoted yourself to this pursuit, not just El Cap, but like, you know, just climbing in general in a culture in which it's all about hacks and shortcuts, right? Yeah, that stuff drives me crazy. Yeah, I can't stand it, you know, I can't stand it. If you really want value out of your life experience, like stop trying to find the shortcut. I know, I know that, yeah. Because when you're 70 and you look back on El Cap, you're probably not gonna, it's, it's the memory of being on the peak probably pales in comparison to thinking about all those days of preparation that, you know, that's the meaning of it for you. Yeah. Well, I mean, the memory of being on the peak is, is still pretty, good. I'm still yeah, very yeah, excited yeah. about it, but it is but true it, but, that but it, but the it's meaning years on the peak and years is so meaningful like, because of everything. Yeah, because I've spent years that. working on right. it and years thinking about it and you're, yeah, no, I mean, for right. sure, for sure. I mean, that, that idea of, you know, like what's the life hack to mastery? And you're like, oh, the whole, by definition, mastery takes years and years, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like, you don't, you don't just like life hack it or whatever mm-hmm. that, that stuff really annoys me because, no. you know, if, if there was an easy way to do it, then everybody would do it. Like, you know, I mean, if it was easy, then it wouldn't be hard. Yeah. But that's, I mean, some things just require time and work and effort and you just, you well, just mastery certainly does I mean, proficiency, not necessarily. And it seems like we've we've prioritized, you know, adequacy over over <laughs> like the appreciation for truly, you know, what it takes to be a master of something. Yeah, I mean, that's another one of the ideas that I've been thinking about a lot with regards to a potential TED talk or something. The idea of mastery and like because like why is free solo climbing so important to me? And uh, you know, the pursuit of mastery is a big part of that, like feeling right. like you're good at what it you do. It is an example. It is a it is a manifestation yeah. and expression of mastery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Well, so what is that thing you want to master and how much work do you have to put into it? Right. (laughs) And forget about trying to take the short route. I know. Like, yeah, the, yeah, five minute workout. You're like, nobody gets fit in five minutes. No, of course not. (laughs) Well, speaking of mastery, you are on your way to USC tonight um, to do an event with Michael Gervais. Have you met Mm -hmm. Michael yet? No, no. I'm pretty excited about it. He's the best. I love that guy. I I respect him tremendously. He's one of my favorite people. Hmm. And he has his own podcast, Finding Finding Mastery. So he's all about mastery. So he can show me the mastery. And he's going to ask you (laughs) questions. I mean, he knows how to get right, like deep I'm I'm pretty excited about that. And uh, he's very gifted at that. And he's a beautiful guy. So that's going to be a cool event for you. No, I'm I'm excited. Yeah, please say hi to him for me. I will. All right, man. Well, thanks so much for doing this. Well, I appreciate you warming me up for, for Michael. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah hopefully you're warmed up and not, not yeah. out-talked, but yeah. no, uh, Mike, Michael will get the best out of you. No, I'm psyched. So cool, man. Thanks so much for doing this. Um, if people want to check you out, you're pretty easy to find. Alex Honnold on Instagram, honnoldfoundation.org, right? Yep. Yeah. Contribute, right? Donate. Come on. Yeah. You can yeah, say exactly. it. Yep. Come on. I'm going to make you say it. Please support the Honnold Foundation. <laughs> You're so sheepish. <laughs> support like, our project. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like, I don't know. Come on. Yeah. Get over it. It's yeah. fine. You yeah. know, people want to contribute to it. Set up a recurring donation at honnoldfoundation.org. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and anything else coming up? No. Are you not, speaking anywhere else? I've like all over, but yeah. it's just. Is that it's on just, your website if people want to? Not really. Stuff or I don't no? know. It's just yeah. like, um, I don't even. Yeah. I mean, the TED Talk, that'll be pretty public. Right. 
Um, I'll be at South by Southwest actually in March. Oh, cool. um, the American Alpine Club is doing an annual dinner in February that I'm going to mm. be receiving an award at. Which for once I was like, oh, I get to receive an award instead of having to speak. Because yeah. I've done a lot of those uh, nonprofit fundraiser type things where you mm-hmm. show up and give the keynote to like try to draw people to give to their charity. Right. I was like, oh, for once I don't have to give the keynote. I just have to go up and yeah, accept you still an have award. To give an, you have to give an acceptance speech. No, no. My acceptance no. speech is going to be like, thank you very much. Uh, and I'm going to sit back down. Um, what are you but, doing at South by Southwest? Um, I talk with Jimmy actually. Oh, cool. But nice. um, And then... And actually, I think they're going to be maybe premiering the Donwall movie, which is mm. about Tommy Caldwell climbing a big mm. route on El Cap, um, which I'm pretty excited about seeing that too. Cool. Has nothing to do with me, I don't think, but it's going to be an amazing movie. Yeah. But right on, man. Anyway, yeah, thanks, thanks, so thanks much for having for, me. for talking to me. Come back anytime. Uh, next, if you ever need a place to park your van, yeah. you can come yeah, here. Yeah, it's not a nice empty gravel <laughs> yeah, lot. It'd right. be perfect. It's nice and flat. Um, yeah. Excellent, man. Thanks yeah, so cool. much, Alex. Yeah, I appreciate it. Peace. Plants. Okay, you guys, there it is. We did it. There was a lot of anticipation about that conversation. Did it deliver? I think it did. Uh, Let me know online at Rich Roll on Twitter and Instagram. And please drop Alex a line on Instagram or Twitter at Alex Honnold and uh, share your thoughts with him. Let him know how much you enjoyed our conversation. As always, check out the show notes at richroll.com for plenty of additional links and resources on everything that we talked about today to expand your experience your knowledge base of this conversation beyond what's in your earbuds in your ear holes uh, reminder plant power way italia our brand new cookbook is coming out in april but it's available for pre-order now pre-orders are super important to us and helpful so if you're inclined to uh want to know what that book is all about do me a favor reserve a copy now by pre-ordering it on your favorite online bookseller website Uh, If you want to support my work, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or on whatever platform you enjoy this content. Like I always say, it really does. It's a simple thing. It only takes a minute. And it's amazing how much that is helpful in terms of the show's visibility, extending reach, how it's uh, portrayed visually on the iTunes platform and the other podcast platforms. So yeah, do that if you haven't done so already. You can also support the show on Patreon by going to richroll.com forward slash donate. If you're struggling with your diet and your nutrition, we created an incredibly powerful solution for you guys, our Plant Power Meal Planner. It's got thousands of custom-tailored plant-based recipes, grocery lists, even grocery delivery right at your fingertips, all customized based on your preferences and your allergies and whatever else. It's everything you need, this incredibly powerful toolbox, so that you can eat the way that you would like to eat, the way that you deserve, and it's very affordable, just $1.90 a week when you sign up for a year. To learn more and to sign up, go to meals.richroll.com or click on Meal Planner on the top menu at richroll.com. I want to thank everybody who helped put on the show today, Jason Camiolo for his engineering wizardry, his production, his interstitial music, help with the WordPress page, all kinds of good stuff. Sean Patterson for all the amazing graphics that he creates. Uh, Michael Gibson, who has really stepped up on the videography front so that these episodes are all available on video at YouTube dot com forward slash rich roll and theme music as always by analemma thanks for the love see you guys back here soon peace plants namaste